You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hello and welcome to the show within a show. We're talking about Trevin Goat's movie talk. This will be volume two. We made it to volume two. It's like, it's like really volume one should have probably been volume one, two, and possibly two and a half or maybe three. But, you know, we finally roll it out to official number two. This is like Guardians of the Galaxy volume two. Only it's us. I was thinking and that. I, and I have to apologize to everyone. I'm sure everyone you know, hears our voices and thinks, oh, man, go and uh, Trev back together. They must be doing Bride of Boogity. But you just got to wait yeah. still a little bit longer. I know everyone's waiting. Keep but... waiting. Keep waiting. Anyway. It's almost. We're getting there. Yeah. So I guess this episode will come out in September. So you're right around the corner from Boogity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, I, I don't know, like I, I, you know, like I said, like last time we did this, it was kind of an experiment. I didn't know how it would uh, go over, so to speak, because it's different from our, our usual format. And then also, too, like we picked some pretty, I don't know, I don't know if they were necessarily esoteric, but they were more outside of the, they were movie related, some of the topics we talked about on the first show. But they definitely went off in like, uh, I don't know, just directions that a lot of movie talk shows uh, don't usually go in so I didn't know how it'd be received but like honestly like since since we released that episode it's been the most downloaded episode we had so like I just take that as a vote of confidence from the listeners that they're okay with it and I figured you know we'll, we'll try not to make it you know it just kind of got away from us uh last time and it being a three-hour show I figured you know we'll we'll, we'll, we'll kind of pare it down a little bit you know have a little few sure. less topics so but I, and that, I might sound dis- that might sound disappointing to people but that just means we'll have more topics left over to talk about for volume three yeah so. i already got some in the, in the in the back of the you know whatever for volume three but uh yeah it's it, it, it's like i love doing this format show and you, i'm sure you probably agree with this too trev because you used to do if it bleeds it can kill it which is i won't say exactly like this but kind of similar is like it's great to do this type of show every couple months when things really bubble up to your brain that you want to discuss with your friends but it's hard to come up with these type of topics on a weekly basis for a regular show it is yeah and like that's like a couple of the things we want to talk about tonight are kind of like at least one of them is very very recent and one of them is from the last couple of years and then other ones are kind of just more generalized and but that's thing is like like you said uh yeah, this is just a great opportunity to get to catch up with you and talk about these things which you know yeah i could like message you online about these but the ability to have an actual conversation that's what i look forward to and honestly we used to do that quite a bit and like i mean mm-hmm. we, we still chat on a regular basis but we used to do that quite a bit and there were so many times when we would be in like that giant group chat and there would be like a topic that would come up and like almost everybody would weigh in and it would go on for hours and hours like half a day discussion about what i was like damn that should have been an episode of something <laughs> you know yeah yeah in fact, sometimes we would be planning an episode and we would start talking about what that episode was about. I feel like we would kind of burn ourselves out before the episode, yeah, just kind of yeah. over-talking it online. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And uh, yeah, so I, I think we can get away with doing three, maybe four of these a year. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I don't think we'll get the Rotten Tomatoes thrown at us for doing it. So I can't remember the order of who went f- whatever first or last last time. Do, do you want to kick this one off, Trevor? One of your yeah, topics. I can, I, yeah, I can kick this off because I've got a very recent one. This is just uh, my, my first topic is something I'm just kind of curious about, Goat, from you, because uh, we haven't, this is a film that's a, a very recent release, but we haven't talked about it. And I want to just hear your thoughts on the movie, but then also just kind of talk about like a, maybe a post-mortem of the, the release of it. But uh, I'm curious as it's kind of out there in the ether right now, let's talk about James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. 
Oh yeah, man. So first of all, um, just just a, I think I'm a little bit disadvantaged when it comes to going out to a movies theatrically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we like really in my town we had a first run theater which was I believe it's 14 screens, but a lot of the houses are small, so it's really almost like the equivalent of seven. Mm-hmm. And then we had a second run theater which they closed down unfortunately during the pandemic. Just the lease came up and they didn't see the point of continuing. So it's like. Yeah, it's like going to see any movie, even during the pandemic, it's like very tough to get tickets. Uh, yeah. It's especially if, like, I won't even say opening weekend at this point where I live. It's tough to get tickets opening week, like, unless you really want to sit in a first row type thing, which I don't, you know, it's hard to watch a movie like that. So I got to say, this HBO Max thing has been my lifeline to new movies this entire last year. And I, I love it. And I get why people don't like it. And I get the economics of it screwing everything up. But this was like one of the few times I loved it because I could watch this movie. I watched it the opening night, uh, Friday night, and you know I got to see it before there was any spoilers out there. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, yeah, I could do that. I'll just quickly. I will say, and maybe maybe a little bit more of this just in a couple minutes. But I mean, I'm not. A, I think WB made a huge mistake in this plan. Like in turn, we're seeing that in terms of you know some of the box office receipts and you know the response to it, as you said. But certainly no shade to anyone who's been, who's been taking advantage of it if the opportunity is there for you. And especially in a pandemic where, as you said, like some people just aren't comfortable going back to the theater yet. Some theaters aren't, you know, back at full capacity. I know in some places theaters aren't showing any movies like past 9 p.m. You know, so, yeah, so things like that. I wouldn't, like I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't hold it against anyone who just decided to watch this at home. I, I wouldn't sell in the theater. But uh, but yeah, I can't blame you for just like the, the ease of it is turning it on in your, in your living room that night. Yeah, and like, um, for sure, the, I mean, the way I figured, well, I mean, first of all, they made it available to me this way, so I figured I'm not sure. doing anything wrong, it's not like I bootlegged mm-hmm. it, but, yeah. um, but I'm definitely going to gonna buy it, buy a copy of it, you know, when it comes out, and um, yeah, like, like actually, my fiance, she watched it, and she loved it so much, she, she felt the need, she went on the next week, and uh, actually bought a ticket uh, at her local theater, even though we, you know, she didn't go, we didn't go, but just a you know, hey, here's here's a couple bucks, whatever. But um, yeah, I love I love this movie, and it's one of those things where it's like, I guess I just never realized how big of a James Gunn fan I really am, because like I know kind of like who he is and what he represents and i've seen all his films that he's directed with the exception of super which is really dumb because i've had a copy of it sitting on the shelf for like over five years just need to literally throw it in but um yeah like i just his movies really hit hard for me this one like i won't say it was really perfect so i I gotta preface this which i know you're not in this camp trev so like i was actually a very big fan of the first suicide squad movie um, mm-hmm. I know why people don't like it. I get it. But for me, it was like, it was more on my wavelength. I just loved like the collection of characters working together. And, uh, so it was like, it was going to be hard for this film to top it. And I, I don't know if it exactly topped that movie for me cause they're just different beasts, but it's a shame that this one didn't go over well financially. And obviously there's a lot of different reasons why, but I love this formula and I would love to see every roughly five years as, new characters cycle in and out of like the dc film world or whatever i just wish we could get a suicide squad like about every five years with a couple of returning characters a couple new characters i love the format i thought james gunn definitely put his his touch on it like some of it was like a little too james gunny you know without going into major spoilers like the giant kind of uh camp slaughter that was like 
uh, face-off between Peacemaker and Bloodsport, that was, like, a little too, like, hardy fucking hard for me. <laughs> but, like, other than that one moment, like, I just love this movie. Like, I would literally give this movie a 9 out of 10, like, and the highlights for me were uh, the brief appearance of Weasel and then of King Shark. So I, I love this movie. I, I, I can't get enough of it. And I actually went back. I rewatched the first Suicide Squad. I rewatched Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 because I've actually only seen that movie twice. Like, And now like I'm going to finish it off with a, another viewing of the Suicide Squad before it leaves HBO Max here in a couple of days. So I... Yeah, no, I, I liked it quite a bit too. So yeah, like like many other people, I was not a fan of the first one. Although I have recently fallen into the camp of, you know, I never wanted to be one of those release the whatever cut guys. But yeah. I, I, you know, I I do find myself saying, I mean, just just let Air put his cut out. You know, if you did that for Snyder, and now you've had Air kind of acknowledging that you know he's the the version that we've seen is not the version he was happy with, which we kind of knew at the time. Yeah. And the fact that they had that like the trailer company recut the whole movie. You know what? What is the what's the loss for them at this point to just put out his version as well and just just to get to see it? I'm always I'm always of the opinion that I don't think from what from what I can see from myself, I doubt his version is like a great movie, but I bet it's yeah. better than what we got because I'm sure it's at least more coherent, uh, particularly in that like first hour, which is where the 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 version we had is like really really cut to hell. Um, but I definitely so for me this was like a, definitely a huge improvement. Uh, I don't think I liked it as much as the two Guardians films. I think there is something to be said sometimes for, you know, um, this is complicated to say, but the fact that he kind of had to be reined back a little bit to fit, you know, into like the, the Marvel mold uh, and kind of keep himself at a, you know, a certain like, you know, within certain parameters might have been beneficial to him. I'd say like, I, I don't think the Suicide Squad is a perfect film. I think that it's uh, it, it rambles a little bit in its narrative, but what he did in Guardians of the Galaxy obviously did really well here. Uh, this collection of characters is just so great. And like his, his ability to kind of match that, like those the crazy misfits with like heart, but then also here to be allowed to like really indulge in the, the James Gunnisms of, you know, just <laughs> filthy language and out, outrageous violence yeah. and really push those extremes. Definitely, definitely a lot of fun to see. Uh, my highlights were I, I loved John Cena in this. Um, so that makes me very excited for the Peacemaker show. Um, and I really liked how Idris Elba was using this. Idris Elba is an actor who I feel like I'm not the first person to say this, but we all know he should be a star and it just seems like Hollywood can't really figure out how to use him. And this was finally, even though he was basically just playing, you know, this, this was clearly written to be Will Smith and Will Smith didn't want it, didn't want to do this one. So they just quickly changed the name of the character, but still it was like, just a, it was such a perfect leading role for Idris Elba. A lot of him to be funny, a lot of him to be like a little bit more of a badass. Um, yeah, it's like, and as you said, with the, the, the box office disappointment, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm kind of worried about that because it leaves you wondering like, what is like, what's the next step now for these characters and for this oh, yeah. franchise? I saw someone on Twitter say, which I, I kind of agreed with, you know, like even beyond James Gunn doing another one, wouldn't it be cool if every few years, just another filmmaker could make Suicide Squad Yeah, and you just get this like collection of Suicide Squad movies from different filmmakers with different, I don't know, ethereal tones to them. I was like, Oh, I love that idea. You know? Um, but yeah. That, that's really kind of what I want is just a new director stepping in and putting their spin on it. And I like mm -hmm. to, I like to see, I like this thing and I understand we're kind of like bobbing back and forth with this whole DC film world um, where it's like we're constantly reinventing it because it's there's a lot of criticism from the fans. So we're kind of like reinventing it, but then we're not completely starting over and then we're doing standalone films. 
I like the thing of like let the filmmaker like James Gunn like they when he said like which characters do I have to re- like basically bring back and he and they were like you can bring them all back or you can bring none of them back it's a mm-hmm. you know it's up to you and I like I like that approach but I like when there's just like that tiny tiny bit of loose kind of like I don't need to Trev I don't need to sit there and, and be like a Star Wars Marvel cinematic universe like continuity nerd and be like you know but it's just like as long as loosely I can believe that like harley quinn from suicide squad and birds of prey and the the suicide squad 2 as long as like in the back of mine i can loosely believe that this is like you know the same character you know what i mean like that's all mm-hmm. i need i don't need like these like really tight continuity like yeah. connections and stuff but it, so i i like that where it's like okay if you weren't exactly a fan and i've and i've been like i mean you know me i joke around with it but I've been all for let's give Jared Leto another shot. And people are like, no, it would just be exactly the same. It would be terrible. And I'm like, well, you don't know what these actors can do with their portrayal when it's a completely different script by a completely different writer, a completely different director. Like, I kind of like that, you know, you get a different spin. Because as much as I liked uh, Margot Robbie's uh, Harley Quinn in, in the first Suicide Squad movie, like, to me, like, she's given three completely different performances. Like, the character like was in a different place like emotionally psychologically in all three movies she's been in and i felt like i felt like that like maybe that loose continuity is a good way to like stop these things from feeling like so repetitive all the time you know what i mean yeah no i like i'm right now i'm on on record as saying like i love dc's approach right now and the thing is it's like it's a great approach because it's not the marvel approach that's where they screwed up at the beginning was just trying to do the marvel thing and you know like Look, I still I still enjoy the whole Marvel thing as well, you know. Like I'm I'm, enjo- I'm enjoying a lot of the recent products. Um, and that's for product, you know. That's the right word to use. But <laughs> let's call it what it is. Hey, yeah. when, 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 let's be honest. When when you and me were were buying comic books, whether it be Marvel comics, DC, any kind of comics, when when you when we were buying product as kids and that felt like such a pure experience to us then let's be honest that was product then too it really exactly was. exactly yeah and in but like at the end of the day like i have to admit like um i'm not super jazzed about like shang chi or eternals you know i'm, I'm looking forward to the spider-man film but that's because of you know all the, the multiverse stuff with that like right now not to say it's the thing where like Marvel is probably going to be consistently higher quality than DC because they've got their formula locked in. Right. But at the same time, I'm definitely more interested in everything DC is doing. Like that makes sense. Right. Cause it's just like, it's such a crapshoot. You don't know you're going to get, that means you're going to get some like probably low lows, but you're also going to get some incredible high highs. And I don't think, obviously we wouldn't have got a film like the suicide squad from Marvel. Um, So they're just like, they're just taking some, some bigger risks and you know, when that hits, it's going to hit well. And it is it is too bad that a bunch of factors cause this one to kind of fall on its face a little bit. Uh, I hope I hope Warner Brothers is like very aware of those factors. They don't yeah. hold this against you know Gunn or any of like the performers. But uh, but yeah, I, I I just thought this was great and I, it was just cool to let to see them, especially after not trusting Ayer and kind of coming in and really messing with his vision, to just be smart enough to say okay, let's just let Gunn do what he does, you know. Which I'm sure they also saw as a little bit of an fu to Disney, but yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, the only kind of, like, I won't go as far as call it, like, a silver lining, but I, the thing I'm kind of, like, crossing my fingers with and hoping, you know, because James Gunn is doing more with uh, with DC, you know, he has the mm-hmm. Peacemaker show, which I believe he directed, like, six out of the eight episodes, so, I mean, he's heavily, and I think he wrote it all, too, but he's heavily yeah. on hands with that, and, uh, yeah, like... 
I hope we're in this thing in it, that there's an understanding by the studio. Because let's be honest, Warner Brothers lost their ass this year. And I know everybody says, oh, it's just the dumb, you know, they just shot themselves in the foot because they did the whole HBO Max thing. But, like, let's be honest, like, one week uh, the Suicide Squad came out and it was, like, I think, I want to believe box office-wise it did, like, $26.5 And because mm-hmm. it was, like, a $180 million budget... Like, they call that a huge flop. The next week, Free Guy comes out, which was a lot cheaper. It was only, like, a $100 million movie. Well, it did, like, $28 million, like, $2 million more than Suicide Squad. And, like, people were falling over themselves talking about this proves that the theatrical experience is here to stay. People, you know, it's such a huge hit for it. But, and I'm like, okay, I get it. It was a cheaper movie. But it kind of points that, like, no matter what movie we have come out, there's going to be some level of a cap of box office right now. You know what I mean? Whether you release expensive movie. I mean, I think, obviously, the bigger, more high-profile movie you release, the more you're going to get attendance-wise. But, like, yeah, it's like, there, you know, like, you know, we're not, you know, nobody can say for sure, but, like, there is some sort of cap to how high the box office can go right now. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh the I'm blanking, blank Black Widow, it, it it did good, and Fast and the Furious did pretty good opening weekends, but that was like a time when we were in a di- like a different place with COVID. So, yeah, like I think it's going to be really grim this fall, and I think, I think Dune is going to have a hard time. I think we both yeah. know that. Yeah, and even if that was theatrical only, I don't think all of a sudden people would run off their couches to go watch Dune. You know, it's like, like shit isn't going to clear up and get better. You know, the, the problems that the movie industry have right now, they're not going to get better anytime real soon. So it's like, there's a lot of ways to license these films, whether it be the streaming, pay TV, home video, you know, meaning either physical or it's just like, I just hope that they, that the suicide squad can financially claw, claw itself out of, uh, you know, to the point where it's not seen as a super negative thing. And we just look back three years from now and we're like, oh, it just, you know, COVID fucked it, you know. Well, the people who are worried about that, I do have two things to kind of keep in mind with that. So one is that HBO Max actually is like kind of a godsend for them in the long run on that element. Because, you know, Birds of Prey was also a pretty big bomb for them. Yeah. And yet here within the last week, we have the announcement that they actually are moving forward with a Black Canary movie but for HBO Max. Right. Right. So the fact that, and then you said they're, they're doing the Peacemaker show. Now, granted, they signed off on that before they knew what the box office was. But I saw like a lot of discussion about how like, well, now between Birds of Prey and, and Suicide Squad, that's two Margot Robbie, Harley Quinn movies that are bombed. What are they going to do with that character? And, and my argument would be maybe the right move with her is to just give her an HBO Max show at this point. You know, a lot of that like um, kind of resuscitate that character uh, and like the hype around that character a little bit without the, the, the box office demands. But also, like, I would say, whatever you might think of Warner Brothers, um, I don't know, this is, this is going to sound crazy, because I know at the end of the day, they're all heartless corporations who just care about profit. Right. But, if there's, but if there's any studio to me that seems like they are interested in quality over profit in some way, mm. it's Warner Brothers. So, and I'll make that argument. You look at something like, uh, you look at Denny Villeneuve, right, who did, um, who did Blade Runner 2049 for them, which was a pretty big financial disaster. But was such a critical hit that they turned around and let him do Dune, which as you just said, is like, what a crazy risk, right? Why give Dune to someone who just made a movie that bombed for you? I think it's because they're actually happy with the movie he made. On the inverse of that, the first Suicide Squad made a lot of money. Like that was a hit movie. A huge, like 800 million. 
but the general critic response to it and the general fan response wasn't that strong. So they actually made this decision to pivot away from that version and to pivot away from Ayer. Uh, by the same token, uh, BVS was like a huge hit, but the overall response to it was so iffy that they decided to start kind of pivoting away from Zack Snyder's vision, right? So they actually kind of, I think sometimes Warner Brothers actually does follow like what people are saying about the movies more than they do the yeah. box office. So I think that's a good sign for, you know, Gunn's future because ultimately this was a critical hit and most of the fans seem to like it. So I think Warner Brothers will stay in business with him because they, they see like the long-term potential. And, and let's be honest, you know, without going into a whole history lesson, Warner Brothers, um, because of these decisions that they've made, and I see both sides of it, but but because of the decisions they made, they've lost a lot of talent. Um, Christopher Nolan seems to be gone forever. So mm-hmm. it's like anybody that they can kind of snatch up, um, even if Dune bombs, like, you know, and I, I can't imagine a world where Dune, like, completely bombs and it isn't, like, like, I can't imagine a world where there's not at least, like, some sort of money to be made off of merchandising for it. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's 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 facing a tough economical climate. But I can't I, imagine, I, like, I that's going to be <laughs> Yeah. But, I mean, don't you, don't you think it's going to get to, like, at least 50 million domestic, probably another 100 million worldwide? I mean, perhaps. I don't know. Like you said, Dune was always a hard sell. Like, I, I'm almost to the point where I'm almost, like, a little mad at Denis Villeneuve for ever signing a deal on that one where it's, like, he didn't have the second film guaranteed. Yeah. Because this is, like, so this is what's really scary to me. Just, like, the shaky proposition of this movie now bombing so bad that he never gets to make Dune Part 2, which is actually the second half of the book. And just this idea of having this, like, unfinished story. But this, again, speaks to my, like, I'm, I'm trying to console myself nowadays with this thought that, even if it like completely underwhelms, like I, I wonder how much of Warner Brothers would just say like would just go ahead and let him make number two just to save the face of saying this wasn't a huge like mistake for us to make the film, you know? Yeah. Like what part of them will say like, well, no, we thankfully we have the the um, the HBO Max and COVID excuse to say this is why it didn't yeah. perform well, and we're still planning at the sequel just to just to make it seem like we knew what we were doing, <laughs> you know? Um, but but I don't think we'll get any further. We're not going to get any more than two Dune films, that's for sure. Well, you, you know what, too, Trev. The thing the thing to keep in mind too is um, kind of like the way things flip back and forth for the DC stuff is. Um, you know, there was pretty much a studio shakeup in between, like, the Justice League time and what we have now, and that changed decisions. And now, like, yeah, we know Dune's probably going to take it on the chin pretty good, but uh, pretty much all the people who who made the decisions to greenlight Dune and do Dune and then do the HBO Max strategy, those people most likely will not be with the studio in a year's time. So that could, mm-hmm. like that could really seal Dune's fate in a bad way or like, you know, when the discovery merger happens or, I mean, it's kind of already happened, but like when everything gets restructured, like the new people in charge might say, you know, Dune is actually a valuable property. And if we just let this go, somebody else is going to reboot it in five to 10 years anyway. So why don't we be the people who finally do it right? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it it, it could help. Speaking speaking of Dune, I just saw our our Australian friends, Umbrella Entertainment are finally bringing that Dune miniseries uh, to HD and Blu-ray soon. So yeah, but yeah, it's a good miniseries. And I, I got a notification the other day that my my David Lynch Dune 4K has been delayed. 
so yeah first they did you hear about that first they had for some sort of legal challenge they had to drop the two-hour documentary off the disc now it's delayed uh, it's like oh i can't so yeah i guess i didn't talk about this i, I canceled my pre-order when that documentary got dropped because i already own like dune is my yeah. uh, besides inland empire dune is the other david lynch movie that i'm not so hot on mm-hmm. But I've come around to, I mean, I, I enjoy Dune as an interesting failure. Like, I find it to be an interesting film at, yeah. for where it falls in Lynch's filmography, and I think it's watchable for that reason. Um, but I already have it on Blu-ray. You know, I have, yeah. like, a fairly, like, you know, just the this, this standard Blu-ray I was out before. And then when they announced that Arrow set, I was like, hmm, do I really need, do I need to, like, buy, a, like, an expensive, huge special edition of a David Lynch movie I'm not even that big of a fan of? But they said they had that documentary on there. It's like, oh man, like a feature-length documentary about the making of this film that is like infamously like problematic behind the scenes and everything. It's like I I really want to see that. And then yeah, when they dropped that documentary off, um, and I actually know that uh, I, I we can talk about this off mic because it's not my place to tell. But uh, I know some I know some still behind the scenes stories about uh, what happened there, and I will say it's not it's not legal stuff. But uh, okay. But yeah, so when that was dropped, I I canceled my pre-order and decided to stick with my uh, my standard Dune Blu-ray. Yeah, I was kind of in that point where I was looking down the barrel of that purchase and how expensive it was, and I was like, I only have the film on HD DVD, which, I mean, the copy still works. I could still throw it in, but I was like, I never even got the Blu-ray of it, and I was like, if I could kind of like skip up to like the whole 4K and the deluxe set and the thing, and it's going to have this documentary. So that I was like, you know, it being such a huge upgrade for me, I was like, I was like, okay, I like it's gonna hurt i think that's maybe the most i've ever paid for a movie in all honesty and i've, I've bought some pretty I've, i bought my share of 30 dollar blu-rays of things that were out of print or whatever but mm-hmm. like i was like yeah and i saw that and i got the notification about a week ago it'd been delayed and i didn't check the difference between release dates how long it got delayed i think it got delayed about a month but i was like man that hurts because i really wanted to take that in like not only take it in before the new film came out but like give it some some breathing room you know what i mean yeah because i didn't want to just be completely comparing the two in my head while i'm trying to take in the new version but yeah i don't know i just i always liked the movie but i don't know couldn't tell you exactly why if it's a nostalgia thing if it's a david lynch thing if it's just a weird movie thing i don't know well for me too the thing is like i mean i know it's kind of a, a not a well like a hugely beloved film in general but uh not to be like that guy, not to be like pushing up my glasses, nerd guy or whatever, but I'm, I'm also a huge fan of the Dune book and, and like the entire series. So for me, it's also a fact of the movie kind of failing as an adaptation a little bit. Right. Know? But, yeah, which, but yeah, there's, there's certainly still, there's certainly still entertaining things in that movie. And I like some of the performances and some of the visuals are cool. And like I said, as, uh, as a Lynch fan, I think it's, it's still a, a valuable part of his filmography to look at and see like, what does it look like when Lynch tries to make a big Hollywood blockbuster? Yeah. Yeah, I have to say in a weird way, and I mean, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of great classic books that I never read, but in a weird way, that was one of the reasons why I never read Dune Book, because like, I had such fond memories of it coming out. I, I actually didn't get any of the toys, but I remember the toys coming out, and the toys being out is what got me interested in the movie, you know, mm-hmm. and we saw it when it came out, and like, I'm sure it's just, I mean, I don't even remember how old I was when I came out, maybe six, maybe seven at the most, so it's not like I was really like... I really had taste to judge the movie. To me, it was just like, it was like watching a Star Wars movie or something like that. So it's like, yeah, I, I never had that bad opinion of the movie. And so it's kind of like that thing where like, I never really want to get disappointed by really finding out how butchered of a version it is. You know what I mean? Great score. Great score by Toto. Yeah. Give him that. Yep. Yeah. 
So yeah, so if that's all you have for that, Trev, I guess mm-hmm. I'll move on to my first one. And it's, it's it's tying in a little bit to what we're talking about. I don't even know if this is really like a question to ask you, but this is just a, some information that I found out like really right before we did the last episode of this and I meant to bring up and it kind of got bumped or escaped my memory. But like I just saw a video uh, on YouTube and this guy pointed me to this uh, website. Anybody can check it out. It's called uh, DVD and Blu-ray Release Port. Uh, sorry, yeah, releasereport.blogspot.com. Have you ever heard of this website, Trev? No. I'm not sure exactly where this information is coming from. Like, it looks official, but it's a Blogspot site. So, like, it's not, as far as I can tell, it's not real um, complete. But I'm just going to assume that these numbers are for American releases of home video. So what's really interesting is they keep track of all three of the current home video formats, DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K Ultra HD disc. And it's just fascinating because it has the, like, they keep track of the numbers of the amount of uh, disc ever released. And they also, like, it's a weekly report, so it tells you, like, how many came out this week and whatever. And I just wanted to go over the numbers with you, Trev, because I think this is, like, fascinating. So, like, as you can imagine, you know, because you remember when we went from VHS to DVD, people were like, oh, there was so much stuff released on VHS, right? And, like, there's mm-hmm. no possible way it can always come out on DVD. And I don't know what the VHS numbers were, but, it, you know, it was true. A lot of stuff on VHS, like, just obscure weird shit because VHS was, like, the biggest home video format all the time. So, like, it's pretty interesting when you when you see every time we jump in a generation of a disc format that we get lesser and lesser releases. So it's like... And they even break it down for standard replication titles and the um, the MOD, like those made-on-demand discs. But, I mean, I won't break it down that far, but just the total DVDs released since that format came out, I think I think it launched like around 1997, there's been two, 250,880 DVDs. Again, I don't know if this is worldwide or U.S., I'm just assuming it's U.S., but... 250,000 some changed DVDs were released. Now we go to Blu-ray, which like I think a lot of people still think is Blu-ray is kind of new Trev cuz like but when you think about it 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 launched in 2006 Blu-ray did mm-hmm. which which yeah. was like le- actually less than 10 years after DVD and I don't think the the movie industry or the electronics industry thought it would be so hard to get people to switch over from and by the way how long are these dvd players lasting that we still have holdouts of people that won't go from dvd to blu-ray <laughs> it's pretty wild you ever, if you ever like walk down the aisle like you can still see in like yeah. places like walmart and target they still they still sell like standard just like dvd players you know they're like yeah. like 40 bucks it's like oh okay yeah, yeah it's, it's wild and it's like and you know what's funny too is I don't have this information like the current numbers but there's another website called the numbers I think I think it's called the numbers.com and they they have like a little more out of date stuff like information like it's usually a few months old but if you look DVD is still to this day the best selling format like by oh, yeah. far like there's I mean there's still plenty there that uh, it frustrates me because there's a lot of movies that still only come out on DVD yeah um I was a really big fan of that film Spontaneous last year mm-hmm. and uh, I I wanted to pick that up and I ended up buying a DVD of it because there's no Blu-ray oh, sucks. So, I see that yeah so yeah so. 250,880 DVDs released since that format came out. Since 2006, Blu-ray, 30,178 titles. So we're going from 250,000 to 30,000. 
Now we'll get to the, the 4K numbers. And keep in mind, uh, 4K came out 2016, or like February 2016. So it's a relatively new format. But five years is a long time to consistently put movies out on a format. So we go down to 4K. It's only 823 titles, Trev. So it's like DVD 250,000, Blu-ray 30,000, 4K 800 and some change. Like mm-hmm. that's really whittling it down. And to put it in perspective, the the net change for the last week in the last week, these numbers are of uh, August 20th. So th- these are uh, pretty current numbers. Um, in the last week, there was 125 DVDs came out, 121 Blu-rays came out. And only two 4Ks came out in the last week. So not only will I think Blu-ray will... It's just mathematic. Like, the only way mathematically possible Blu-ray as a format will, will catch up with number of titles released to DVD is if they stop making the DVD, which they're not. But even then, I don't think 4K will ever come close to... Um, catching even blu-ray as a format you know what i mean well you have to i guess the question becomes this is something i've been curious about 4k because you know we talked about how i still have not upgraded yeah. 4k and i'm still if you know if i ever will and for me a large part of it is that do you think there's anyone like on the studio level or the production level or the you know within the industry that ever intended or thought of 4k as a potential full out full stop replacement for blu-ray i always no. kind of took 4k as it was meant to be I mean, gimmick's not the right word, but it was meant to be a little niche thing for super hardcore video and audio files, and they were only going to put like very particular movies on 4K. I don't think there was ever a thought of 4K as being like the go-to format for every little release. Like, and then certainly like, let's go in our back catalog and make sure we put out like saving silverman on 4k or something i don't think they were ever, like too worried about that i think 4k was always meant to be like oh you want the you want like giant blockbusters right you want very visually driven stuff in the best format okay well then we'll come up with a format that is like mind-blowing on, a, on that level um so i don't know well yeah like i mean i think it was pretty apparent because because the jump to dvd to blu-ray quality is just huge i mean i don't care what kind of equipment you have you can always spot the difference the Blu-ray to 4K jump is, it, it's, you know, 4K technically is, is a high-quality format, but it's, like, the Blu-ray to 4K, it's, like, depending from title to title, like, it's a little more harder, depending what equipment you have, to really tell, yeah. like, the main difference. Like, I, for a long time, I had a problem where I was, like, 4K is not worth it. Like, it's not really, you know, and it's it's only really through, I think, the colors. Like, if I watch a 4K movie first and then I pop in the Blu-ray, I'll notice how dull the colors are on Blu-ray. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like like pretty much to answer your question, Trev, is 4K was not really something movie studios wanted. They weren't sitting around like 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 there was the pessimistic talk of a long time, like even like, you know, five, six years ago, like, oh, I, we don't think Blu-ray is going to make it. You know, what I mean? it's just why. And I'm just like, well, I couldn't imagine a world where we just stopped releasing Blu-rays and went back to DVD or, you know what I mean? Like that would just seem weird. Like. Like, if Blu-ray was going to ever die, it, it needed to... It would just only die if, like, every physical format shut down. But, yeah, so it's basically TV makers, before there was even, like, a legit 4K standard, they just started, because they physically could, because, you know, computer monitors started becoming, like, 4K high-end computer monitors. They're like, oh, we can make 4K TV. So, like, there was a good three or four years where they were just releasing 4K tvs that were like it was basically just a a marketing gimmick because the color reproduction wasn't any better it it didn't so it wasn't it took like a few years of that and then finally like 
somebody was like, okay, all these 4K TVs are coming over. Like, we might as well release, like, a physical movie standard. And then that's where, like, they kind of finally solidified the 4K Ultra D, Ultra HD standard, which is, like, not just the resolution, but the expanded colors and, the you know, all that kind of shit. So it's like, yeah, like, I think you're right about that. Because I remember even early in the lifespan of the format, and it happens now, too, like, even major studios like Warner Brothers, they don't release everything in 4K. Now, it's a little puzzling sometimes what they don't release in 4K because they'll release in 4K, like, those, like, really poorly animated DC, like, 65-minute movies. But they won't release something like like uh, The Little Things starring Denzel Washington or Live By Night uh, starring Ben Affleck on 4K because they're like, they're like, well, the box office wasn't good for these theatrical movies, so we don't, we don't want to invest the money on doing a 4K, but somehow we'll do a 4K of, like, a cartoon that has zero box office at all like i don't i don't really get that but like yeah i think i think you're right that it's always going to be i mean it is it's like literally there's 30 times more blu-rays released than 4ks and and i get like okay uh blu-ray had a 10-year head start but 4k is never going to catch up when in the last week you know there was over 120 blu-rays and only two coming out of 4k you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, it's strange. We live in like a really weird time right now to where you can't you can't turn a corner in like, you know, the the movie world without someone showing you an article about how physical media is dying and it's going to be dead yeah. soon and that's you know, that's been happening for the past 6 or 7 years, you know, and it's still still kicking. I'm not saying it's like doing super, I mean it's it's not doing amazingly well and I know yeah. it doesn't turn the profits it used to for studios and I just uh, you know, I saw Matt Damon on uh, he was on Hot Ones on YouTube. I don't know if you saw this clip uh, goat, but no. He was asked, like, you know, about, like, the way that the, the movie industry has changed since he got into it. And he's talking about how, you know, the kind of films he used to like making. He was just, you know, he was acknowledging something we all know. He was saying, you know, the, he said that the biggest change since I got into, since I came out of the business, is that the DVD market completely collapsed. And he's like, the DVD market used to be like a godsend for all of us because these smaller films, the kind of more interesting films I would like to do, they might not do well in the box office, but then they would turn a big profit on DVD. And so studios are still willing to make these movies. And now without DVD those kind of movies just aren't being made anymore. And so, but, okay, so to that point, yes, DVD is not what it used to be. And it, you see all these articles, physical media's dead, physical media's dead. And then every day on Facebook and on Twitter yeah. and stuff, I'm seeing more and more like Blu-rays and DVDs released of like old catalog titles, you know, yeah. uh, companies like Kino and, you know, still putting out like old movies you've never heard of. You know, you have Paramount going back and doing a bunch of their old catalog and new Blu-rays. And it's just weirdly like for a market that's dying, they're still pumping out so much product. I do think one thing that's like a huge difference is, you know, when the DVD market first started, there was a huge DVD boom in the late 90s and early 2000s. All these like new releases that were coming out and like kind of releases of old catalog titles from the 70s and 80s were treated like, you know, they would actually do big press releases. There'd be like commercials for like new releases. Uh -huh. They'd be like advertising magazines. All these films were given these like special edition treatments. And now you definitely see where like all these Blu-rays and DVDs that come out now are just like bare bones. Yeah. And the special edition ones are only coming through like companies like Arrow or Criterion. And so like special editions are now just the just the land of like film nerds. And that's kind of sad because I feel like there was like an effort made by the studios in, in during the DVD boom to try and turn more people into film nerds. And now they're only speaking to the ones that already exist. And I, yeah. I think that's that's I think that's kind of sad. Well, you know what's really weird about like the 4K thing? We're talking about how niche 4K is. Is have you seen the response? And they're very open that they're doing very well with it, and that's why they keep doing more and more. But it's like 
have you seen the response that Blue Underground is getting for their like forty dollar four K titles? People yeah. are going nuts, and they're making sure they order the first batch, so they get the little cardboard slipcover, which really isn't even like anything special. I mean, some of them they do like a lenticular, and people, oh, I gotta have this one, and like I get, but it's like you probably couldn't give away a 4k release of like a popular catalog title from the 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 mid 90s like like a big movie like i'm trying to think of a big movie like like if like like, let's just say like john woo's face off if that came out in 4k tomorrow like the the 4k like heads would go buy it but it, it wouldn't be that whatever but you do like a special edition of dead and buried with (laughs) with freaking uh, three different lenticular covers they're selling out and, and like i get it's that thing like they're not selling millions of copies but it's like if there's enough people willing to pay you know and i get it it costs a lot to do the 4k restoration to do the 4k master to do the 4k uh replication like all that costs a lot of money but it's like here's the thing like you know all this physical media is deader than dead shit is like when the releases slow down when they high when they grind to a halt and that's it that's when physical media would be dead when companies small companies who only have a very limited catalog that they that they can you know currently release when they're like like doing one restoration and moving right on to the next like it's just like yeah it might be a niche audience but if you can get a niche audience to pay 30 bucks a disc it's it's mm-hmm. it's not going to go away like yeah like one day disney might be like oh screw physical media it's, it's pennies on the dollar we don't care but it's like, you know, like those small companies, if they can keep getting the movies licensed to them and doing their own releases. I, I will say one thing that was interesting. I can't remember if we ever talked about this. Uh, nothing to really overly talk about. But Warner Brothers and Universal, I believe it was, they kind of like both slimmed their, um, their, their home video divisions down and merged to where they're kind of like co-producing like not really co-producing together but they're just like they're sharing the facilities and cost of um of a producing physical media and then i believe that was a 10-year pact so at the very least warner brothers and universal two of the major studios they still see like i'm sure they probably think the the format's widening winding down the physical format is winding down but they're not they're not getting out in the next three years the way everybody who loves to watch netflix predicted you know what i mean yeah, and I think like the the lesson we've learned from these small companies, and it's the lesson that you wish this, the big studios would still take to heart, is that if you treat these films like they're special, and you treat them like they're something worthy of a special edition, and you put like love into them, you can trick an audience. <laughs> I mean that in like a good way yeah. into believing that that's special and be, getting excited for it. So like you said, like. Um, and the, the problem is the studios now, they just treat everything like it's just disposable product. Like their yeah. biggest films are like, I guess we'll just throw us on a DVD. Maybe we'll do a Blu-ray. Um, but even if we do the Blu-ray, the only special feature will be maybe, uh, I don't know, like a, a little five-minute featurette if you're lucky. Uh, more likely just nothing now. But you can take any film. If you're if you're a vinegar syndrome, you can convince people something like Auntie Lee's Meat Pies. You know, it's something yeah. that they have to have because you act like it's a an undiscovered gem. You put love into the restoration. You put in some special features on there. That's the thing is like, it, this is the this has always been the secret of Criterion, right? Criterion has fooled mm-hmm. 
uh, an entire cult of Criterion heads, and I say that as someone who owns a lot of Criterion and gets excited for the Criterion sale, yeah. they've tricked, they've fooled a lot of people in thinking certain movies are the most important movies <laughs> in cinema history yeah. just by giving them the Criterion <laughs> yeah. label and giving them some special features, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I, that's that's uh, To me, that's still the biggest bummer of what's happened with physical media is just how much the special features and how, like, the kind of love and care has gone away from it. And I'm glad these, like, yeah. little studios are stepping up. Even if they can only get the rights to these small little dumpy films, that's still keeping the the joy of collecting alive for me a little bit because it's like, oh, these are interesting movies now that I'm getting. I mean, I just plunked down nearly two hundred dollars for that new uh, for a pre order of that new Severin folk horror box set. Oh, I, haven't yeah. even, I haven't even heard of most of those movies, but just the yeah. fact that like they're, they're <laughs> so loaded with extras and it's like they put so much love and care into it. I'm like, well, that set seems awesome. I have to get that, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree 100%. And, you know, the whole thing of stuff going out of print, and we kind of know now that stuff isn't going out of print forever because a lot of titles, you know, at least well-known titles, you know, recognizable name titles, they kind of leave one company, they go out of print for a year, and they get re-released. But, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like, I've bought so many movies in the last year because either, either they were going out of print or they were, um, uh, like, I like I bought, like, a UK version because the US went out of print. And it's, like, that thing of, like, that specialness is either how much care you put into the release or it's how rare it is. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And it's like, I don't think that's like, I mean, I do think we're like a little bit of a dying breed. Like I do, like I, I completely do all the time. See kids on YouTube that are like 22 years old and they're, they're beaming with pride to show you their giant shelf full of Blu-rays and stuff. But I think that's the minority of the younger generation. Mm-hmm. But like, let's be honest. It's like, there are still companies out there today that have products like really just still being made mostly for the baby boom generation Mm -hmm. so like i would not be shocked if like especially with 4k being like still kind of new like i wouldn't be shocked if physical media legged it out for another at the very least 10 years but maybe 15 years and beyond because it's like i don't know about you travel it's like there's some movies recently where it's like i want this so bad i want this so bad it's 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 never come on disc and it's like or it or it was like only on dvd and it never came in, but it was like it's in hd on voodoo or apple itunes and i'm like dude like i i'm like i should just buy it and stop worrying and i'll have access to watch it whenever i want but i can't bring myself to pay 13 bucks for a digital stream like i can't do it yep. and and like there's just like the satisfaction of like i don't even like say so much like holding the disc and looking at it because i kind of just throw them in a pile until i'm ready to go watch that movie but it's like just actually hunting to buy something (laughs) it's -hmm. it's like i mean i the way i've kind of come to the mentality that it's no different than collecting baseball cards you know like you want to have the baseball card of your favorite players you know and sometimes your favorite players are when you were a kid you know what i mean it's like that type of thing and i do watch them like i watch you know it's the thing it's a it's a collector's mentality but it is a thing that means thing to you like and to me I I love movies so much that for me like I want to show ownership of the films I love and if it's there if it's there on the shelf that just seems to me like more substantial and it means something more than yeah. my ability to pull up a digital copy and, yeah. and you know start playing it off of whatever hard drive or whatever so I mean don't get me wrong like I discover streaming stuff all the time that I'm like this was like a little gem and I'm like oh I'm so glad I found this like so I mean I'm you know I would I would hate it if streaming went away at this point don't get me wrong but it's like there's something about like no matter what happens if the internet's out or if it's just you it strikes your fancy there's something about knowing that you have tons of movies at your fingertips like your favorite movies too you know what i mean 
Yeah, well, I will say the the one benefit of the streaming thing, or one of the benefits for me, I don't know if it's for you, if you're trying to operate on a budget, like what's 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 been nice about the streaming thing is so like recently I made the decision that like I'm not buying any more MCU movies on Blu-ray because mm-hmm. I have Disney Plus and they're all there and you know I can get them at any time. And that means that actually that frees up some money for me to actually splurge on these crazy special editions yeah. of these smaller films and stuff that I might not have got before because it's like, well, now I got to get like, you know, Avengers 7 or whatever on Blu-ray. But now I don't, you know, so now I can take a risk on some crazy film from Severin or Vinegar Syndrome or get a Shout Factory that I want and is a little pricey, you know, so that's kind of nice. So like now I'm, I'm I am more selective with my Blu-rays and it's my Blu-ray collection is actually becoming more curated to like cool special editions and like releases of old films. Yeah. And, and, I mean, you, you know me, Trev, is I'm in the same boat because it's like, like, you know me, I'm still a 3D guy. And, the on, like, literally the only reason I've bought, like, probably the last, I don't know, seven or eight MCU releases was for the 3D version. Like, I waited, like, a year for the, like, there was some reason a gap that far from home, you know. And, like, I passed up buying the 4K of it, like, for eight bucks many times. I'm like, I want the 3D version. Because the 3D to me, at least, like it adds like a gimmick to this popcorn experience. Now, if it's in doubt that they're going to do 3D or anymore, because all they care about is Disney Plus, I'll just watch it on Disney Plus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yep. like they have like the opposite of what we said about these niche companies doing special editions. They have like, if anything, companies like Disney in particular, I should say, uh, not to just pick on them, but they are the worst offenders. They've they've made home video so not special. Like mm-hmm. even even a lot of their sound mixes, Trev, are very shitty now. <laughs> oh oh, the Disney like Blu-rays are terrible for yeah. sound. That's like yeah, that's like well known. Like I like, that's the thing about the that's the other thing with the MCU ones I have is like the sound mix on all my MCU Blu-rays are terrible. You have to turn yeah. your TV up so loud yeah. and shit to, and play with your settings to make it to get any kind of great sound. Yeah, it's it sucks. And I don't get it either because they claim that. And, you know, because, like, the like the soundtrack that you get on a normal Blu-ray, it has been kind of re-optimized for home theater and home surround because the, 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 you know, the way your, your, your either your sound bar or your TV sound or your, or even like me, you know, I got the 5.1 surround sound, that, the sound has to be recalibrated because it's not playing in a room anymore that's like a giant cinema room. So, like... Disney's excuse of why those sound mixes are so bad is supposedly they're optimizing them for streaming. And I'm like, even when you play it on streaming, it sounds like shit. Like, even if you mm-hmm. like, you know, because like my bedroom, I just have a TV and a streaming thing. And it's like, when I watch one of your shits through the TV speakers, it sounds like fucking garbage. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that's what I'm saying. If anybody ever wants to hear like what you mean, like what, if, when you're like, if you were talking to someone, you're like, well, I don't know how could I come, couldn't we really sound that bad? Try watching a Disney movie on Blu-ray or streaming on just a regular TV speakers yeah. without a sound bar or a surround sound system. And just and just have fun riding that volume control as you uh, cycle through dialogue yeah. scenes and, and action scenes. Yeah. And, and uh, if you got the physical releases on hand, uh, no matter what kind of setup you got, just TV speakers, surround sound, whatever you got, do a double feature of the first Avengers movie and then Avengers Age of Ultron. Because Age of Ultron was the first one that they did a shitty sound mix on. It's mm-hmm. terrible. Like, I remember, like, you know, we watched Age of Ultron in the theater, and then I bought the Blu-ray, and um, I think we were sitting down to watch it in 3D at home, and, like, even my fiancé at the time was like, what's wrong with the sound? Like, like, and, like, I was like, I gotta have, like, a setting screwed up, so I went through on my receiver, and I was like, no, everything is set up right, you know? Like, sometimes the, the, the receiver will be left in, like, a weird mode or something. I was like, no, everything was okay. 
my setup was good it just sounds like shit and then like you hear everybody like all the home theater enthusiasts that still collect physical media they just say yeah like disney's garbage <laughs> like i don't know mm-hmm. why they're garbage because their whole streaming excuse it doesn't make sense it's just they yeah. suck yep so sorry i didn't mean to drag that one out so long <laughs> nope no no problem uh all right i'll move on to my next one and this is uh this is exciting because this is uh, okay it's time to talk controversy goat oh and it's a controversy that was uh, from a couple years ago, but it just it seems like it can't die. It keeps flaring up every once in a while. It was just flaring up again recently for a particular reason. So I want to talk to you about a filmmaker I know we both love and the controversy surrounding him. So let's talk Quentin Tarantino and Bruce Lee. Oh. Uh, and, and I mean, I guess we can just say let's just have a general talk then about, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think we've briefly talked about. But um, I know you like you uh, like me are a huge Tarantino fan. Um, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the film, but also just where you fall in this whole, I, I hate to even bring it up because I'm, I'm just sick of it, but you know, since you and I've never talked about it, maybe this can be like my last time talking about it with someone who I know loves this filmmaker as much as I do. Where do you fall on the whole, like, was this, was, like, was he wrong to pick Bruce Lee this way? Like, you know, where, where do you fall on that? Um, well, y- yes and no. Like I, like I kind of buy Quentin's explanation of it where, which by the way, I love the movie. Mm-hmm. I love. My, I think it might be my second favorite Tarantino film now. Yeah, like Tarantino's so weird to me, dude. Because like, and I started doing a Tarantino rewatch recently, and I only did the first two so far, and I kind of got knocked off track. But um, because like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it's always on Stars, and like it's it's always it's it's always just getting flipped on in our house and being left on for like forty five minutes to an hour or however long to because like so like I've seen parts of the movie so many times like like add it all up I've probably seen the movie five times plus plus I own a physical copy but it's just one of those movies when it's always on TV we can't turn it off but um I love the movie and by the way I didn't think I would I didn't even bother seeing it in theaters I didn't want to deal with the crowds because I'm like oh this retro shit Charles Manson shit like I don't I don't care like okay. And, like, boy, was I wrong. Um, but in a weird way, like, I'm kind of glad I did watch it at home for the first time because it's, like, I had no distractions and I completely fell in love with the movie. But um, I love the movie, but I always saw it as, like, this, this, you know, and I love Bruce Lee and I love the Bruce Lee scene in the movie, but, like, I always saw it as, like, this, I don't know if bubblegum is the right word, Trev, but it's, like, it was it was never meant to be real it was never meant to be autobiographical biographical of any of the real people that are in it like that's what's so weird to me it's so strange to me that this is a controversy and people get so worked up about that scene when it's like you're angry about the depiction of bruce lee in a movie that like literally changes history yeah so it's like this like kind of mirror universe movie right so he's not why why do people feel he's under any obligation to to pick these characters 100% accurately? That's what doesn't make any sense to me. Like 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 yeah, to me the like the the comparison is like Saving Private Ryan and Glorious Bastards. Like Glorious Bastards or I should say Saving Private Ryan is like the movie where it's like they recreate the D-Day thing and Tom Hanks is shaking with PTSD after the battle and it's like that kind of movie. And then Glorious Bastards is the movie where Brad Pitt is like I was like, I want my Nazi scalps. Everybody must give me, in this unit must give me 30 Nazi scalps. And, like, the movie ends with, like, Eli Roth, like, machine-gunning Hitler in the face. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like, oh, they're both World War II movies. I mean, they would make a great double feature. It's like, well, I mean, maybe in a weird way, but not really. Like, they're they're completely different. So, like, when, when I watch 
Once Upon a Time. And I mean, it's literally supposed to be a fable. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, that's why it's called Once Upon a Time. So it's like, I don't think that, you know, and, and, and I've seen some of the interviews recently, um, just playing them on my TV in the background while I work during the day. And like, I've heard his defense of it and I get it. Like he says, Hey, it's cool if, you know, Bruce Lee's daughter has a problem with it, but everybody else can suck my dick. Cause it's, you know, it, it is what it is. And he kind of backs it up with some facts of Bruce Lee taking liberties with stuntmen. But I mean, I don't even care about that shit. You know, like I don't, th- first of all, it's like, I, I, even if it was like a real thing that really happened in real life and he just recreated the movie, I wouldn't have a problem with that either. Like, I don't think it's even that offensive to Bruce Lee. Like, the only thing it does is say that Bruce Lee couldn't win every single fight in the world. You know what I mean? At the very worst insult. You know what I mean? Yeah, so only like, oh, like a white guy beat him. It's like, yeah. I mean, there might have been white guys who could beat Bruce Lee in, the, in, the, yeah. in that kind of fight too, right? And that's the whole thing is it's like, you know, it's, it's this like three-round fight. It's just this like simple kind of street fight. Yeah. Also, like... I just, when people get angry about that, I just think if someone made a movie where like Bruce Lee showed up as a fictional character and like fought vampires or something, nobody would give a shit. People would say, "Oh, what a fun like tribute to Bruce Lee, right?" But that's that's bullshit. Like that didn't yeah, happen. Exactly. So like why? So you're only allowed to like make you're only allowed to fudge with the facts if it's in a only you know in a positive way. If you are if some people and that's, as you said, that's even if he is fudging with the facts. I don't know. It's just it's just such a dumb. That's what that's what I want to talk to you about because I just think it's such a dumb controversy for such like a meaningless thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I was also just kind of curious about your thoughts on the film in general. And I was curious, did you uh, did you read the, the novel or are you interested in reading the novel? Because I did. Uh, no, I, I haven't got it or anything. I mean, it's it, it's obviously I am interested, but it's you know it's like, dude, I never read anymore, like anything. <laughs> yeah, but I think I, I knowing like knowing how much you love Tarantino yeah. and like knowing your like love of cinema and everything, I really recommend you pick it up. And I think I, I don't know how much like if you're a fast reader or whatever, you're gonna finish that book within a week. Um, I devoured it in like a day and a half. Um, wow. Now I don't think it says. I think it only works. I've I've seen people talk about like how interesting it would be if anyone read that book before seeing the movie. Yeah. I think it kind of only works as a companion piece to the movie. I think you yeah. have to know the movie fairly well and look at the book almost like as again like almost a mirror universe telling of it because um you know it has some scenes that were cut out of the movie, but it also kind of like reorders the structure of the film. I mean, just as a little spoiler thing here, like the entire the entire climax of the film, the the Manson attack scene happens very early in the book and it happens as like a flash forward that the narrator just tells us about and then it like gets that out of the way and like that whole element of the story is no longer the the crux of the story like the book is much more focused on rick's attempted comeback and uh his relationship with uh, trudy the young actress that ends up being like the emotional like through line of the book um so it's like definitely like a very different telling of it but it's, you know, it, Tarantino's, like, uh, authorial voice is interesting. Obviously, it goes on a lot of tangents about Hollywood history. There's a really kind of a sweet moment where he has uh, Rick uh, and James Stacy, the star of uh, the, the Western he's on, uh, go to this bar one night uh, after filming. And yeah. Quentin Tarantino actually writes his own stepdad into, like, the into the story as a character. Yeah, and Kurt Zast appeal. Yeah. 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 So there's, like, cool stuff. Like, as a, as a Tarantino nerd, it's definitely worth, like, a, a read. It made me excited for him to perhaps do some of his other movies like that or just to, you know, write some other novels as, as he walks away from filmmaking, allegedly. So. No, yeah. I, like, I actually enjoy reading, and I actually am a pretty quick reader. Um, I have to say, like, and I, was, I was a pretty heavy reader, too, in all honesty, like, not to completely shift the blame, but it's like it kind of stopped for me 
like no kidding when like dvd came along and i started like amassing actual films and having films at my fingertips and it's like that thing of like i always am like in almost in a panic of like i never feel like there's enough time to watch all the shit i want to watch but mm -hmm. it's like it's like you need something different too at the same time and it's like yeah i really do need to get back in there i actually have a couple books several books that i've gotten for the last in the over the last 10 years as like christmas presents like books i wanted books i requested and like you know i just other than flipping through them here and there i just yeah. never whatever well one last tarantino question before i move to your next topic go yes. this is a quick this is a quick one so I, I know this is like an almost unfair question because honestly it's not up to us and like whatever he decides to do i'll be there for but he said he only has one more film to go if you could have like any influence on that because, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of people think he's there's to talk about maybe it'll be a Kill Bill 3 finally, um, you know, or whatever. But what would you like to see for Tarantino's last film? Is there a particular genre you'd like him to do one like as his last bow out or, or what? Actually, yeah, I, I just got to say one thing about that statement about his last film. Like, I hate that. I hate when he brings it up. I hate well, actually he doesn't really bring it up now. Like he's kind of let it be known and then people bring it up. And like I get mm -hmm. his fear, but I'm like the opposite of a lot of people. Like, I think, I think the best thing a director can do, because I don't think one bad movie, two bad movies, kill the rest of a great filmography of different directors. And I know, like, we kind of have different opinions. I like it when directors leave it all out there and, like, their last couple movies aren't so great or they're just really niche where, like, they made it just for them. Because it's like... I rather like I feel like good directors are such a hard such a rare commodity to come behind I think you should leave it all out there instead of pulling back and I know Tarantino's saying because he's been pretty much acclaimed from day one for the most part um he wants to go out on top and he almost mm -hmm. like wishes like he would have went out with once upon a time and all that but I'm like that's almost scare talk like why should somebody who's so great you know, it's it just like the people are like, oh, Michael Jordan's Washington Wizards years sucked. I'm like, why? Because you averaged 24 points a game instead of 32. You know what I mean? It's like. I think, though, like my opinion of that is I think Tarantino's already kind of found a way to hedge his bet on that a little bit. Yeah. I, I think I think he is very concerned about his legacy. And I think earlier on, he talked himself into this idea of 10 films and trying to have this like, you know, impeccable filmography. And now he's like so locked into it. And, you know, he's gone on podcasts talking about, like, the final films from filmmakers that are actually good, but then him talking about how he doesn't believe that's usually the case. So I think he's really gotten in his own head about that, about the importance of this. But I think he's also realized that he is a storyteller and he can't turn that part of himself off. And I think we're already sensing from him, and he's already kind of alluded to, he's going to stay true to his word, I believe, by doing this, like, 10 films and out thing. Yeah. And then he's just going to transition to doing, like, TV, TV miniseries. Yeah. Because he's already got this relationship with Netflix, and I think what you're going to see is I think we're going to get I think we're going to get what are essentially Tarantino films, but told episodically, and that'll be his way to still do what he does, but uh, but allow himself to say I've made those ten films and I was done just like I promised. Anyways, here's my new mini series or whatever. So, and you know what's funny about that too is I agree with you because he's he's actually talked about it. And he said he would do plays, he'd do TVs, mm -hmm. he's working on a play. So I mean, he's not going to disappear off the face of the earth. No. Yeah. But it's, like, that thing of, like, he wants to do... Yeah, because I've seen him talking about he wants to do, like, eight-hour miniseries and stuff. There ain't no way in fuck that this guy is... Which, by the way, it's great. It can be on Netflix. But guess what? It's going to be shot in 35 millimeter at the very least. 
And you know somebody's going to have the temptation trap to want to show that shit theatrically and make money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it's it's going to happen. But yeah, to 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 really answer the question, um, I do. I would love to see him. Um, I know he brought it up and said he won't do it, but he said he thought about remaking Reservoir Dogs, and like mm-hmm. I would actually like that, like to come full circle. Like I would, like I would not be mad at him for that, like at all. Like I think he's actually kind of already made Reservoir Dogs and bits of pieces throughout his last, I don't know, three or four films. But um, yeah, like I want to see him come back to the crime genre. Like to and me, people kind of like raise their eyebrows at that. Yeah, people kind of raise their eyebrows at that and forget that Hitchcock remade a couple of his own films a couple times. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. well, I mean, also too, I mean, we like like I still think probably Reservoir Dogs is my favorite Tarantino movie, but um, you know, it's like yeah, we all know Reservoir Dogs, we all saw it, we all know Mr. Blonde, we all know this, we all know that, but is Reservoir Dogs really celebrated, Trev? Like, if he were to do like a remake of it. Would people be not enthused because it's a remake? Like you know what I mean? Like people would still pop a boner. Oh, yeah. Like oh, you know. I, I think for me, like the key to that would be I don't know how you feel, but if he was going to redo Reservoir Dogs, I would want it to be like a version where now we do show the the jewelry heist and like yeah. you know what I mean? It's like don't just do the same thing. Like now ex- expand that world. Say like, okay, here's a more Tarantino-ish version of Reservoir Dogs, which we really expand on this story. Like I don't want to just see the same movie again. Oh, yeah. I don't think he would do that. That's the key, right? Yeah. I mean, I I think he might even, in all honesty, go as far as to have it not be even set in America or something like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like he's worked with such great international talent. But I mean, but apart from that, it's like I always go back to, and it's like, I I think in a weird way, maybe I'm not sure. I think in a weird way, like some of his best shit was Inglorious Bastards with Christoph Waltz. That's my favorite one, yeah. I th- I think I think when it, when I saw that movie, and I mean don't get me wrong, Trev, I mean of the highest order his acting, the performances he gets out of the people is great. But when I was I remember sitting in the theater, I'm like, "Holy shit, like he's got like that opening scene with Christoph Waltz. He's got like he's reached with the like the writing was always there, but like the acting has now got up to like a like a straight up Academy Award level. Like I mean, I mean not that, you know, travolta shouldn't have won or something like that you know for pulp fiction but it's like i mean like he really should have like a lot more award you know oscar winning actors now that i think about his performances but like like to me there was something about the low i don't even want to like jerk off to the low budgetness but like the 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 style that he had in in reservoir dogs pulp and jackie brown but it was like there was a style but it was very restrained and like I don't know, like, I just want more of that, and i kind of been craving that, and like, I'd never begrudge him, because, like, one, like, for a while, my second favorite Tarantino movie was Death Proof, like, I was writing, and everybody was shitting on it, oh, it dude, I love, I love Death Proof, and yeah. I love it, I, I only love it more and more as, like, the years go by, oh, I think it's yeah. so underrated, yeah, but yeah, because it, it, and I love how retro it is with the car chases and stuff, and it's just, like, like, like it's not retro just for sake of being retro like it's retro because that's the most exciting way to do that shit you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i think it's you know in the modern era you know i think it's the you know the, that genre of like you know bullet with steve mcqueen and all that shit like like i think it it, it belongs right up there with the best car chase moves, movies oh, yeah. of all time but um yeah dude i i want to get back to the 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 um 
You know, and because what I really liked about his movies, even at the time, Trev, with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, I liked that we were in like the 90s. But when you watch his movies, you felt like you were watching something from the 70s. And I really miss that quality in his filmmaking. Well, that kind of speaks like uh, somewhat speaks to like what I would like to see. And this is just something it's something he, he talked about before and it never happened. Um, so to your end, like I would also like him to return to crime. But like what I would like to see is I would really love to see like a, a like a 40s era gangster film from tarantino yeah like just that kind of old like that real old school like actual like pulp noir era uh yeah. and have him like play in that world so that's that's the one thing i kind of regret that we never got from him and i think that'd be yeah. that'd be like a nice kind of swan song but no i, I agree 100 percent. yeah yeah but yeah tarantino that, that, that actually makes me sad whenever see that shit brought up about him retiring because <laughs> i think it's more beautiful to either do what i said like what i like what directors do when they just they keep going till they can't go anymore because like to me it's like if you make one or two bad ones like who cares if you got a great filmography but but also too i kind of like the mystery of like like yeah i'm gonna make another movie and it just never happens you know what i mean mm-hmm. so uh my second topic trev is um we are in this era where there is no shame in making a superhero film, right? Like, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking specifically for the actors. So, like, even I want to say ten years ago, like even the even in the beginning rumblings of the MCU, it was still kind of like all oh, superhero movies, whatever. You know, they're, they're just cash grabs. They're just things for younger people, whatever. But it's like, I think we've kind of come flip side to with both the critics and the audiences. Where like now people are more suspicious of like an A level drama comes out they're like oh that's just oscar bait that's just bullshit that's whatever so it's like superhero films are some of the places some of the projects where actors can get paid the most get the most recognition get the biggest boost in their career these things can go on and on for like a long period of time like a decade plus if they wanted to so if there's nothing like wrong with an actor carrying on like a franchise for a long time, like you know, like how Robert Downey Jr. did with Iron Man, how, why in the last like three to four years have we hit this skid where we cannot get people to play, you know, a recurring superhero character over a long period of time? Like that's just done now. Have you noticed that? Um. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. When you were saying that, I was thinking of how, and I've thought this before, and like this is kind of reminding me of it. It is really weird how, especially for someone, for people of our age who grew up at a time when like superhero films were like fairly rare and like they're often considered like, what are you doing? You know, and a yeah, lot of right. them are garbage. And like, it's just so funny to think about like the, how far we've come. And I know like that's obviously been said, but this idea now where like, almost every actor has been in one and it's like more interesting to think of the actors who have not been in a comic book film. Like the fact that, you know, um, yeah. geez, I'm trying to think now. I'm like, uh, hmm, I don't know. Like wh- who are some of the big ones who like have not been in one yet? You know, I, I'm sure you, um, <sighs> like, like it's probably like Denzel Washington. Yeah, right? like Denzel. Denzel Washington has still not been in like a comic book film. Right. So, so when you think of those, um, it's like, Oh, that's interesting that he hasn't, he hasn't brought himself to one yet. And there is an element, there's a part of me that's like, finds it kind of sad that it's like at the point where every, like you were just saying how these are the, these are the movies that actors have to take to get like the big paydays. And it's really like the kind of the only thing the studio is making. Like that's the depressing part of it, right? That every actor now basically has to be in superhero films because that's really all that's being made and that's all that's left. And it's like, well, that's, that's kind of a bummer to where like, that's their only avenue. And so that's when you get into things where like, 
you know, I'm not even a fan of Joker, but like that idea of like Todd Phillips wanting to do like a Scorsese ripoff and and sorry, homage, <laughs> and only being able to do it if he co- if he turns it into a comic book film, right? right? And even James Gunn, James Gunn, someone recently on record and people kind of attacked him for it but i get where he's coming from he was saying that he thinks a lot of superhero films like recent ones are boring and him kind of acknowledging that he's going to use the superhero genre to like do whatever he wants because it's the kind of genre people let him play in so if he wants to make a dirty dozen film he can turn into the suicide squad and now he's talked about how he wants to do a western well chances are he'll have to do the western as a comic book film you know yeah and like that's a bummer so i think what you're seeing now is to your end, like, why can't people stick around any longer? I wonder if, like, a lot of these actors are starting to, you know, they acknowledge the reality of it. They acknowledge, like, getting in these superhero films. But are we starting to see a backlash from, like, the Hollywood industry community of saying, like, we're kind of sick of this. Let's not get too bogged down it. And let's make sure it's not just the, uh, the rest of our life. Like, I don't want to be, like, just this forever. Like, I wonder yeah. if that's a part of it. Yeah, like, I was, like, really thinking about this. And the thing that kind of triggered me this is, is I've kind of like lost like a good chunk of my Marvel fandom ever since the release of the film Endgame because it really rubbed me story wise and dramatically like it really rubbed me the wrong way that they kind of you know exited out both Iron Man and Captain America in the same fucking film and I'm like that was just like money shit like that's all that was and like I kind of get it with Downey because like. He was willing to show up as many times as they had a giant payday for him. And I ain't got no problem with that. I'm not criticizing that. So I kind of get why the studio would be like, oh, it'd be nice if we could unload Downey's big big paydays. But then when it seemed like um, Chris Evans, like that just seemed more like where Marvel is just like, we just don't want to pay actors anymore. Like there was never like a long negotiation. He just was like, yeah, I got one movie left on my deal and that's it. And it's like, you know, same thing kind of seemed like with Scarlett Johansson. It was like, oh, we got to kill her off. Her contract's coming off. And it's like, now we're at this point where it's like, yeah, you know, this could be the last standalone Spider-Man film for Tom Holland. And I'm like, why? The guy's like 26 years old. He could go another 10 years if he wanted to. People are loving him. His other projects, not being negative, but they have not worked out critically or box office wise. Mm -hmm. Like, why is everybody just getting like, like the studios are just washing their hands of them because it's like we'll just get somebody else and it's like i don't mean to put it like a damper on like what marvel's doing but don't you think a little bit of the projects marvel's choosing now trev is they they can just cast unknowns and like that's literally the only reason they're doing that particular movie like you know what i mean (laughs) well the tom holland one is further complicated by the sony relationship though too so that's part of it um in terms of like the unknown thing i mean don't forget like chris hemsworth was an unknown as well at the time you know when they cast him so it's that's like that's not necessarily you know and guardians of the galaxy like wasn't exactly like you know chris pratt had parks and rec but it's not like it was like an all-star cast or anything so it's not like unheard of for them to cast unknowns i think I mean, I kind of have, like, an opposite opinion with you with Endgame to where, like, um, in terms of, like, Captain America and Iron Man leaving, see, that's the reason I liked Endgame, because it actually felt like, okay, this closes the book on this, you know? Like, it actually felt like from from Iron Man up to Endgame feels like this nice, complete kind of story, and that's what makes, like, everything that follows kind of tricky, because it really feels like you're starting a second era, and, like, the I think the difficulty of that era is that it'd be one thing if it was just a complete break and there, the second era was like all like just nothing but new characters and everything, but yeah. just enough stuff is sticking around to like constantly remind you of the old era. And I'm not saying I want Hemsworth to leave. Cause he really is the one actor who seems like he's just like, I'll play Thor till I'm like 60. I don't care. You know, he yeah. seems really into it. 
Um, so I'm not saying I want to get rid of him. I'm not saying Tom Hiddleston should leave if he doesn't want to. But because they stick around, then it's like this weird, it does become this like weird mishmash of like, oh, there's the old guy. There's some of the old guys we like now mixed with the new guys. Uh, you know, it's, in theory, it should work. We haven't. We don't know yet if it has because we haven't really seen this this new batch of characters yet. Yeah. The big test will be the first Avengers film that comes out that's like the, the new Avengers, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so... I wonder if like because they are because they are casting these like newer guys like right well like a like a Simon Liu or these guys will they be willing to stick around longer or will they just do their like six films too and be like okay I'm out of here you know yeah I guess it also depends on your star power right? I can see people like it's almost like Marvel probably doesn't want these people to become too big of a star you know someone like an Anthony Mackie is probably more willing to stick around for a long time than a Chris Evans you know just because yeah. Chris Evans has more opportunities. Well, like, I, I would think even if you had to, like, stay on at a reduced rate type of thing to do these films, and, like, obviously nobody feels good about doing a high-grossing movie and taking a pay cut, but it's, like, don't you kind of feel like, especially, like, a guy like Anthony Mackie, like, maybe he's the guy who's kind of figured it out the best, because Anthony Mackie, like, he seems like a relative newcomer like you know back when like winter soldier came out but even up to that point if you look at him that guy had been in like so much shit Mm -hmm. i mean he was in the hurt locker he worked with spike lee like like i almost feel like anthony mackie is like the one guy that's figured out like i'm gonna stick around and do their stuff and it's like and then i'm still gonna do all my like you know you know i mean he's done other studio movies too don't get me wrong but like he's he like he can still stay and on the side do all his like little dramas and stuff you know what i mean yeah that's right i recently um a couple months ago i watched uh, no sudden move on hbo max mm. which um i was i was not a huge fan of but like but while i was watching it, i was thinking of like so an actor like don Cheadle, who was good in it and he's always good but yeah. i was just thinking like well making this film i wonder how much and i you can tell he likes doing the marvel stuff he's having fun he's willing to come back and i think it's great that he's getting his own show i think he deserves it the same time it's just like man i wonder how much how great this felt for him to be making a movie that felt like felt like such a pre-superhero film yeah. you know just like a real like adult kind of you know like a Soderbergh crime you know drama it has nothing to do with superhero bullshit like i wonder how like he must have just been on that set and been like ah yes you know and like that's the thing is like these actors aren't getting as many of those opportunities so maybe they're yeah. just maybe they're like reflexively fleeing from it because they're just frustrated because it really is I, you know, I, I have become the guy where it's like, is there too much superhero stuff? And I only said it's yeah. like, it, it'd be one thing if there was the, the same amount, but there's still other stuff being made. But it really is choking everything else out. Like, that's the problem. Well, I mean, not to go too much on a tangent. I've, I've thought about that, too. And, like, with me, it's not so much, like, the quantity. It's, it's, it's the way, like, the fans react. Like, all the superhero shit, like, if you really were to break down, okay, how many weeks in, in a year, how many films released per week, superhero shit is actually still, in, you know, same with TV shows, you know, all the superhero TV shows. And all. It's just, like, it's it's not that they're overwhelming the, the landscape in terms of numbers. They're overwhelming sucking the air out of the room because that's all people care about. And yeah. Then, and then it's like, well, do you really blame Marvel from going from two films a year to four when they're making the only movies that are keeping theaters open? It's like that's kind of why I backed off on being critical in that way. It's like it's like, dude, if you're going to, you know, if if the big evil, which, by the way, like, sorry, but I stand with ScarJo. <laughs> <laughs> oh i do too for sure yeah. like like i i like unless something changes quick and whatever like i'm i'm actually you know i mean i probably wouldn't go to the theater anyway right now 
but um yeah like i'm i'm perfectly fine with waiting the three months or however long till the films come on disney plus because i just i don't want to give them any money right now but um yeah it actually it actually bums me out that the only marvel actor who's, who's kind of like uh, spoke up in her, in her defense is elizabeth olsen yeah I, I, I wish others had like said something about it yeah and it's just like next time we get we get we get a, uh, a power shot of women in a marvel movie i'm going to be rolling my eyes twice as hard <laughs> but um but yeah but it's just like it's like you know and you know me I, i've been the biggest whiner and complainer of how the movie industry has changed over the last 15 years but when i gotta really be honest with myself trev it's the audience who has done it more than the studios have done it because the studios like we i mean it, we talked about it 10 years ago i mean we you and me literally did podcasts where we talked about how the mid-budget drama studio film just died out because nobody would pay to go see them anymore so yeah but don't you think it's a snake eating its own tail thing here where it's like you say it's the audience but hasn't this hasn't the audience to a certain degree been trained to only care about these films by the way the studio has like you know put the majority <laughs> of the hype behind them and also you know the studio has kind of also just decided to kind of pivot away from this we were just saying with like physical media right you treat like a smaller film like a big deal and you can fool an audience into thinking that was if, if studios would kind of get behind a, a wider variety of blockbusters again, and even mid budget films, I think they could get the audience back. They just don't want to, they don't want to take that risk, you know, or, or don't want to try. So I, I agree. There's like a little bit of like the way the record industry, when shit got hard for the record industry 20 years ago, they just pivoted and they dropped all the rock bands off and they just put all their promotion behind like, britney spears albums like there is mm -hmm. that going on but at the same time trev it's like you know like like i turned 44 this summer when i was you know 19 years old i was making multiple trips a month to like independent theaters to see independent films and i still am very interested in independent film and i try to find as many good ones as i can so it's like here i am literally 25 years later my be like no matter what the studio does my behavior as a movie consumer has not changed so like why do i just have to give a free pass to everybody else who just has to be dumb and only watch bullshit you know what i mean <laughs> well but they don't have but i mean you kind of i mean i i see i hear what you're saying but at the same time the opportunities aren't there for younger people to be like you and I were when we were younger either. They don't have as many independent theaters to, to discover these films at. And they don't yeah. have video stores to go in and have a clerk say, Hey, have you checked out this like weird Jim Jarmusch film or something? You know, like, that's not happening. Yeah. And all the, the only content they're being spoon fed are, is like big studio stuff. So that's, I mean, that's a huge difference too. It's just not, it's not, the landscape's not the same anymore. It's not, it's not a fair landscape too to smaller films and to like you know more artistic efforts like that i mean i i agree with you on that too like i watched a uh like literally a micro budget movie on netflix in the last week uh that movie creep and i'm like oh speak also speaking of um i i finally get to cross another movie off my list of shame that i haven't seen trev like you told me literally seven years ago to go watch blue ruin and, and it finally took me to just this past week actually yesterday finishing it so yeah do you like it yeah, I loved it. I mean, it's like, yeah. like, like I'm just saying, like, like, like if I would have seen that movie when I was 19 years old, or I would have seen it this week, I would have loved it equally the same. Like that's just that's just my type of movie right there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like yesterday, I recorded a uh, commentary for Two Days in the Valley, and like again, I loved that movie in 1996. I still love it now. It's just like there's something like no matter how much the movie industry changes, no matter how much the world changes, even as much as I change as a person getting older, like. 
it's like uh, just like some people are always going to be a sucker for any superhero movie and uh, i gotta be honest too i'm a sucker for any superhero movie too i'm not i'm not trying to be turn nose down on anybody but it's like that's what i mean it's like and i know what you mean about the younger people aren't exposed to it but like don't their parents because i mean like like i mean i'm sure you know this like 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 when you were growing up wasn't your dad always telling you about movies that he saw that he loved that came out like before you were born you know what i mean like like the parents have to pass it on too you know what i mean yeah i mean i think you know that like uh, you know everything dies off a little or like a little bit by a little bit i guess of every generation yeah. um you know we talked about this i think our last episode too about how every generation has more back catalog to feel like they have to catch up on too that's and that's true. like that's overwhelming you know so it, and they just have like more you know when you and i growing up we didn't have as many distractions either you know it's yeah. not like we had so many other things vying for our attention besides video games and movies you know and now you have like oh i could yeah i could go to the movies or i could just watch like 18 youtube videos um or just get on tiktok for a while you know so it's yeah. i don't know it's just it's just a changing landscape it is what it is it's sad i think i i i, I know we talked about this but i recently me and my buddy's been doing like a, a regular kind of movie night we've been watching like a lot of 90s films early 90s and nice man i'm just so nostalgic for that time you know and just yep. that, that idea like going to the theater and like what what a crazy variety of films were playing at a theater at any given time and the kind of movies that were getting like big releases and being treated like you know legitimate stuff that would that would now if it was made at all would be a like a netflix original that is shows up 19th in the new released algorithm and then just goes away forever and you don't know about yeah, like, I, I, speaking of that, I, there was a video I caught maybe three or four months ago, and I tried to, like, go back on YouTube, and I tried to go back and find it, and it was, a, it was a, like, a really young guy, like, probably 21, 22 years old, and he did, he was doing kind of, like, video essays, and I don't know why I was stupid, I didn't subscribe to the channel, but he did a, a thing, and it was about this really obscure, I want to say it was Korean movie, uh, obviously South Korea, South, Korean movie, but it, it came out like a year or two ago on Netflix, no, like for like no, like I forget how long it was out, four or five months on Netflix. There wasn't a peep about it. Finally, some critics started writing articles about it and it got like, you know, got this like buzz and I think it even got nominated uh, for awards. And the guy was saying like, like, that's just that's that's our responsibility as the film fans now is because the companies aren't going to create that movie culture that that they used to create for us to tell us what was important and what's not. So it's up to us. Like, if you find something like a gem in the rough, like in this, you know, whatever digital wasteland where shit just gets pops out out there and with no promotion, it's like it's kind of like up to us. We have to make the movie culture now. We have to mm -hmm. spread the word about shit, you know, so. Yep. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> but hey, Michael Keaton's Batman again. So I guess people, you know, you just, they, you know, once their five whatever movie deal runs out, you just got to wait 20 years for people to, uh, to get, uh, you know, nostalgic. Yeah, you wait long enough now. You know, Michael Keaton is literally playing a character in both uh, DC and Marvel right now. That's true. So That's true. He just can't get away from it. And it, at any time, he could resurrect the Birdman franchise if he wanted to. It's true. It's true. All right, well, go. I got a, I got a little, uh, so like a, a game we're gonna play here, right. because we decided this time to only have three topics each. Yeah. But as I was writing stuff down, I just couldn't stop myself. I ended up writing five topics, and rather than choose one of my remaining three, I'm gonna let you choose my next topic. Okay. And I'll just roll the other two over into our next episode. But uh, I'm just gonna ask you to choose the numbers one, two, or three, and then I'll, whichever one you pick is the topic I'll roll with my, for my final one for this episode. Well, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but two is my lucky number, so I'm going to go for two. 
Okay. <laughs> you, you chose, a, you chose a, a good silly one to end on, I suppose, although we still okay. have your topic. Yeah. So um, I wanted, like, this is fun then. Uh, I want to talk to you then. <laughs> this is fun because we're just talking about like actors and the importance of actors and like uh, franchise and stuff. So let's talk about Ernest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love him. Yeah. So I, I uh, this is because we were just talking about like what are like younger generations. And I, Ernest to me is like this interesting thing because I recently had the opportunity to kind of like, um, introduce some like younger friends to like the, the like the concept of Ernest and beyond even showing them like an Ernest movie instead watch this like little brief YouTube documentary about how strange like the Ernest phenomenon was right so here's a, a character that was created as like a, a pitch man for like TV commercials local TV commercials at the beginning and then kind of yeah. got bought up into like national ad campaigns for some certain things like I think Sprite and some other stuff and then to like have like a commercial character like suddenly be given like a move like for like a children's TV show and then a series of movies and a, such an odd series of movies too right like really hearkening back to like kind of old school kind of like the almost like the Marx Brothers ish right where you take but even the Marx Brothers were playing different characters in every film yeah that was like they were like always the Marx Brothers but they were playing different variations on that but Ernest is just always Ernest yeah but but he can be in a world where like he has to actually save Santa Claus. He can suddenly be living in a different town and have to fight trolls. Yeah. He can be sent to like prison and have to fight his own evil twin that he didn't know about. You know? <laughs> yes. It's like, all these different things. It's like how, and there's just nothing like that anymore. And I mean, mm. so Bird, like you know, uh, our buddy Bird, we've of we've gone talked about how like the closest parallel today to Ernest is actually Medea. That's true. Um, and that like Medea is like a singular character who's like in a bunch of different films based around her. But even that's slightly different because there is this like kind of all the Medea films do kind of slide into this like kind of somewhat continuity driven universe of like supporting characters. Whereas the Ernest movies, it's almost more like how do you take this one character and plop them into a different genre, you know, and, and try it around. So I, I'm just curious to hear, like, um, I've, I've, I have a question I'm going to ask about in a moment, but I just want to hear like, uh, did you grow up with Ernest? Did you love Ernest? Which ones do you like the most? And I can talk about that. And then I have a question for you. Well, yeah, it's like, and I think this is like one of the topics where, um, our age difference is really because because I have a couple other f- friends who are obsessed with Ernest as well, and I mm-hmm. think this is where our slight age difference is really going to come into play. So I was all in on Ernest. I w- I was a huge fan of Ernest Goes to Camp, mm-hmm. and then just by natural whatever, I kind of aged out at a point. So I was always aware of his other movies, but because you know they whatever like. Like, I want to say I watched the Christmas one. Like, I mean, recently, like in the last 10 years, I watched the Christmas one. But in general, and I remember one time I went over to my uncle's house and he actually, just for his own enjoyment, he rented an Ernest movie. I think it was Ernest Scared Stupid. I, I like, I won't say I missed out on Ernest because I was an Ernest fan and all that. But I, I wasn't really there, like, through the whole run. I was kind of there, like, for the milk commercials and then he did the one movie, and, like, once he started making other movies, like, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, like, you know, would only catch bits and pieces of them on TV. But, I mean, I love Jim Varney. Like, yeah. Like, I, I actually think as a just a goofy comedy movie, I think his version of the Beverly Hillbillies is actually pretty underrated for, like, Yeah, it's pretty comedies. decent. Yeah. It's pretty decent, yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting because, like, um, you're right. I guess it is just that's interesting how just a slight age difference of a few years can can make the difference there. Because, uh, so I, I definitely was very in earnest as a kid. And, like, I remember, uh, and I'm, I, I, I'm not even sure I remember the commercials as much as I think maybe just my dad taking me to earnest goes to camp and that being, yeah. like, the introduction. 
But then my dad loved Ernest, so like going to see like all those theatrical ones. I think the only theatrical one I didn't see in the theaters was um, Ernest Rides Again, which is the final theatrical one. And that was probably just because it probably only played at like one theater, like yeah. somewhere in Michigan, and then like for one weekend. Because by that point, the the writing was kind of on the wall. And then by the time when that came out, and by the time it went, when it went to like straight to video there, after that, I obviously I was like no longer interested. And I think I did have that moment of like being like I'm done with Ernest. You know, I'm yeah. too old for Ernest, which is kind of sad now looking back because I think I allowed the general critical discourse to like sway me a little bit too much. Yeah. And that's actually like, I think that's another interesting thing about Ernest. I'm sure you've seen it as well of like the kind of ups and downs of like the way that that character in that franchise has been treated because obviously it was never like a critical darling, but obviously it was very popular and like the studio was willing to put a lot of money behind it and treat it as like a big deal for a few years. And it was, you know, it was successful. And then, you know, they probably maybe, maybe just by a product of overexposure and too much too soon or whatever, it kind of starts dying down. But you certainly remember the time when, if you liked Ernest films, you were considered like an idiot, you know? And it was like, and right. Ernest was like, it was like punchline, right? There's jokes uh-huh. in The Simpsons and stuff about how bad the Ernest films are. And it's been nice and rewarding. It's it's just kind of that kind of thing where it's too bad it happened after he passed away. Yeah. But it's nice that now, it's like I feel like anytime you see people talking about Ernest now, it is like a little bit more like, oh yeah, that guy was actually super talented. And, yeah. you, and, you, and you go back and watch those films and it is weird to think that there was ever so much critical like, like, like hatred behind it because it's just like they're they're just kind of nice family films if anything you know it's just where the people are so angry about them well i I think with with the critical reception and it's kind of funny because you said you didn't really remember the commercials and like i like to me that was earnest was the commercials you know which which i mean obviously i didn't see like the local market ones i saw the milk ones you know Mm -hmm. but um I think the thing that kind of led to that kind of backlash, besides obviously he just made a lot of movies and, you know, they kept getting lower budget, lower budget, more, whatever. But other than that, I think the thing that were like, maybe his film career wasn't even like bigger than possibly than it was, could have been with Ernest was like, I think it's like from the get go, it was pretty like, because even the second Pee Wee movie that came out didn't do really that well. But, like, I think the Pee-wee films were more, like, the prestige children pictures at the time. Because, like, when you when you watch a Pee-wee movie, um, like, it feels more like a studio comedy. And when you watch Ernest movies, at least all the ones I've seen, you get that feeling that this is more like a one-man band, uh, independent, low-budget type production. Like, well, you know it was like a two-man about? band, right? Like, yeah. So the guy who created Ernest was a guy named John Cherry. Yeah. Um, and he was, like, the head writer. And I think, I believe he, like, wrote and he co-wrote and co-directed like all of the films and they were very much like you know the studios might release them i think touchstone released quite a few of them but they were basically definitely like basically homegrown productions from those yeah. two kind of just making them you know in the in the south and, in the, and getting a studio to release them so yeah i mean i don't want to go as far as you know like saying they were making like you know whatever drek or whatever but like just when you watch the movies you could always tell that they were kind of like just more and also, too, it was like, I don't know, if anything, he was probably ahead of us. Either he was ahead of his time or he, he kind of blazed the path for Jim Carrey in that up until Jim Carrey comedies, like, you like if you look back at all the comedies, like, pre-Jim Carrey, right, like, through the 80s and 90s, like, all the SNL people, like Bill Murray, like, they were funny, but they, they had to be funny in a, in a funny movie, like a movie that had an actual premise. It wasn't really till Jim Carrey where you could just do like Dumb and Dumber and just all it was it was about was people acting idiotic and that was okay. Mm-hmm. So I really think it's just one of those things where it's like the time period that the Ernest films came out, like 
like oh you're just gonna make a movie that's just about the same guy acting like a goober and he's like he's not even coming up with new characters there's not really a i mean there was new plots there was new premises don't get me wrong but it's like you know these weren't full movies where he was like sharing the screen with other big names i mean there was recognizable people in them but like he he wasn't like co-starring with people it was just he was always like the main guy and i think that probably contributed to like they were kind of a little more like b-list pictures but i mean I, I have nothing but fond memories and you know like the other stuff he would pop up in like i like i love jim varney and when he passed away of uh, i believe it was lung cancer pretty damn young yeah. i was like yeah. i was bummed i was like are you fucking kidding like in my mind he was like mid-career like he was still had places to go you know what i mean yeah that's interesting what you just said about how like you mentioned that like uh, the how he was never kind of like paired up with anybody and you're right like there there's there's barely like recognizable people in his films like you know like the biggest kind of celebrities i can think of is popping up in Ernest films like what you know you think of people like eartha kitt and randall tex cobb you know right, it's like yeah. um and that's kind of like the one missing element i mean i wonder if 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 that character could have stuck on hung on to be like a little bit more relevant you might have gotten to that kind of that more of a production of being like two handers, right? Like, Oh, yeah. what happens if Ernest meets Jackie Chan or something, you know, oh, like, yeah. like, you know, that, that kind of ability to resuscitate the character that way. But, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I just, I was just curious. I, I love, so like my favorite is Ernest goes to jail. I think that's like a legit, like very, very funny film. And Ernest scared stupid is a pretty perennial October watch for me. I think it's like one of the better like kids Halloween movies. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just interesting to me that like, here's a character who like was actually like, uh, it was Disney, you know, Disney plucked that character up from, I, yeah. I believe the story is that, you know, they saw how popular it was in the commercials. I think they had him host like a TV special about Disneyland or something, or mm-hmm. he was part of like a parade at Disneyland and they saw how popular he was. And they were like, well, let's give this guy a movie. And, you know, just like, so he's kind of like this like lost part. I feel like there's to a certain, some degree, it's like a lost part of Disney history where people forget that. Oh, no, that's dude. A, that's a character that was like a very big part of Disney for a couple of years. Yeah, don't get me started. I am such a fan of pretty much what Disney did through the 80s and 90s of like, to me, that's where like, I mean, obviously, you know, the golden age of Walt Disney and the animation and stuff. But like, I'm just talking about like, as like movie studios, like they were so creative, like when they had, you know, regular Disney and then they had Touchstone and then they had Hollywood Pictures, and like they were making every through their different subsidiaries, they were making everything from children's films to like actual adult dramas to like like really good genre fair, like R rated genre fair, like Deep Rising and shit. Like I am so, you know, like and when they kind of contracted back down to just being like the uh, kind of I don't know what you would really consider this era of Disney. I just. Uh, ip factory yeah just yeah i mean i don't know just mainstream i guess you know like more Mm -hmm. focused on um they really got the focus once they saw that how neglected the female market was i mean well female but you know the young girl market with the disney princess shit once that took off like they really like cut this other shit off like we don't we don't need to make regular movies like we make movies that are focused for our demographic only and you know but yeah i love disney in the 80s and 90s and you know like because you said like you know he he, he it, the kind of i guess critical or, or just fan or cult reappraisal that happened for his movies happened after he died it's a shame but i could totally see just like the way uh they plucked uh peewee out like i mean i think i think if he would have hung on and i don't know how old jim varney would have been you know right now probably in his 70s or close to it i he dude he would have 
struck up that earnest machine again and, and made oh, direct sure, yeah. to streaming stuff for sure yeah 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 and he would definitely be he would have definitely become like a commercial pitch man again you know yeah. like that's like there's so much nostalgic value to be mined there maybe we could have even got earnest meets peewee oh that would have been awesome like yeah. it, it, like in a weird way too it would have been actually cooler to see them do it as older guys instead of to see them do it in the 80s you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Like, I think so this is like this kind of popular meme where a lot of people will put up pictures of John Cena next to Jim Varney and say like John Cena should play Ernest now. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of a question I want to run by you of like, so I was just like, not not a serious question, obviously, but like, do you think that the Ernest character? So there actually was John Chariot uh, a few years ago attempted to like revive the Ernest character with like a new actor playing it, and I I don't know how far that went. I think they maybe just a couple like brief online videos, and I'm I'm guessing the reaction to it was not great, you know. Yeah. Um, and I th- I'm not sure if it was played as just Ernest or if it was meant to be like Ernest's son, but, um, you know, with like a prestige kind of level behind it, I, this, I, this actually popped into my head because I've been watching the show Wellington Paranormal. I don't know if you're too familiar with it, but it's yeah, um, heard of it. another spinoff of what we do in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And like the, the main actor that he, you know, people who have seen what we do in the shadows would know him as the cop who comes to the house. And they, they took those characters and gave them their own show. His name's Mike McNogue. And he plays like the main cop in Wellington Paranormal. And he was he's like a really funny guy. A lot of his humor comes through like his facial expressions. And I was just watching an episode like earlier today, and like I was just thinking, like, hmm, this is like a crazy thought. But if they were like rebooted Ernest, <laughs> I could see this guy playing Ernest. Uh, do you think that that character is too much? Like you, you couldn't actually pull that off? Yeah, well well, first of all, here here's the thing is I, I, I believe in the value of the character as a character. Mm-hmm. when you're going into a live action you know whatever you want to call it re- reboot readaptation with a new person playing Ernest, i don't think it i don't think it quite works because the people are nostalgic like you know you and me like 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 our generation of people that grew up with Ernest, like they're not going to really be atta- attracted to a yeah. Um, a new person playing Ernest. I think you go kind of go more in the direction they kind of went back in the day, where he, you know he had the doll and everything, the Ernest doll. I think you just you lean into the animation uh, aspect and you make the character in the animation look just like Jim Varney did, and you get a sound alike um, actor. And I I think that way maybe you could get the younger generation that you clearly want, and you could get the the older people like us would be like okay you know like at least they're paying tribute to the man instead of just having somebody like just come do his shtick because it's like i'm trying to think what was the film series well actually never mind forget that i i I think they kind of proved that you got a hard road to go up remember a couple years ago when wasn't the fairly brothers trying to redo the three stooges yeah yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, so I was just, this, the, you're right, because I was, when you said the thing about, you know, with the voice work, you can pay tribute without it being doing a shtick. Because um, on my other podcast recently, on Failure to Franchise, I was talking to my co host Chris about how we have this, like, kind of long running disagreement where he, he is very anti the, the idea of anybody playing um, Indiana Jones besides Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this on our solo episode, actually. And I mentioned how, like, it doesn't bother me, because, like, I think, and I said, like, in my opinion, almost any character can be played by multiple actors. And the only reason you think that's not the case is because you've only seen one actor play it so far. But, you know, like, let's not forget there was a time when people didn't think James Bond could be anybody but Sean Connery, you know? And, like, these things, like, I believe these characters can be reborn. But I, I guess the one difference is if the character is actually nothing but mannerisms, 
then that's kind of impossible to do. Right. Because you're right, like, there's no actual... Like, Indiana Jones is not just Harrison Ford mannerisms. That's a character who has, like, an interesting job and an interesting, like, outlook and this, like, you know, kind of mission. So it's like another actor can probably pick that up and find an interesting inroad into it and even have different mannerisms and still feel like the character. But something like Ernest or, like, a Mr. Bean, you know, like, that's... There's not actual character there. We don't care about the interiority of that character. We only care about the funny faces and, and... verbal ticks that jim varney's doing so the only the only way to like recreate that character is to just do an imitation and that's the problem yeah and it's you know people say i don't want to see anybody other than than harrison ford play indiana jones is like well you're you're kind of too late on that because many actors actually have played harrison Ford. (laughs) yeah i mean they did a tv show where obviously they had the young version sean patrick flannery they had harrison ford making an appearance a couple episodes but people forget they also had an older version of indy in like i believe his 70s possibly even early 80s that was played by it wasn't harrison ford old age makeup was played by different actors so it's like yeah like like, like, my thing is, like, why even, like, like, I don't even think they should be making the Indiana Jones movie now with Harrison Ford. Like, why? Well, okay, cause, like, nobody wants that sort of entertainment anymore. In all honesty, like, I think you have to be honest with yourself. Like, I don't think, you know, whatever, <laughs> Crypt Hunter <laughs> Relic, or, like, like, I think that's just too old-timey. Like, I think, you know, like, and you can't update Indiana Jones. You can't, like, redo it and place Indiana Jones in the 80s because, like, you know, there was no ancient artifacts to be fought over by that point in time. So it's like, yeah, like, like I I don't see it as an, an actor thing. I just think you got a hard road to go up when people, it's still fresh in people's mind. And I just, I think Ernest would be, I, like, if, they, if somebody would really take the time and put the money into it, I think an animated Ernest project could work. But I don't know mm-hmm. about live action, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know me. If if you tickle my fancy enough, I mean, you know, I launched the whole at real solo campaign when Solo <laughs> came out. So you you don't have to go. But but Han Solo is like a different story. Like he can exist in a many, you know, whatever. Like, well, he is in a time period in himself. But it's like you can go back and forth. Where it's like, yeah, there's really no reason to reinvent Indiana Jones. Whereas I think Ernest, there is a reason to bring it back. But yeah. So yeah, so we, you know, you kind of brought the fun topic, and now I have to bring the downer to end the show. Oh no! So this kind of like hit me, um, and it's kind of like I don't know, I don't know. It seems like it's starting up again with the Eternals, but this was just inspired by this the the the, the somewhat disastrous Scarlett Johansson Black Widow press tour, right? And when I when I when I say ask this question to me, this is less of studios because I think studios are pretty much on board now. But it's more the media still keeps bringing up this every time we we get a female lead. And again, I mean, to me, it's ridiculous. I mean, we had multiple Resident Evil films, Starlin Miljovic. We had the whole Underworld series, you know, Kate Beckinsale. But it's like again, we had a, you know, when the when the the Black Widow stuff came out and all the interviews Scarlett did, I felt bad for it because there was like awkward questions poster and she was put in, you know, place to basically give awkward answers. But like, when can we just like do a female lead movie, especially an action film and have it not be a big deal that she's a female lead? When Like, when is it just going to be fucking normal? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? dude you know you're preaching to the choir what a great question because uh i i mean i agree i don't i it's the frustration is that it's there's still 
they're, they're still not common enough that people still treat them like they're like, uh, you know, like a uh, surprising when they happen. I think that's the problem. Um, I think there's a weird thing too now where you have this thing where it's like, they look at like only certain actresses is like ones who can, Oh, like Shirley Theron, she's one of the ones who can do action. Yeah. Right. Or like, um, Oh, you know, like, uh, you know, I guess like Emily Blunt, who saw her edge tomorrow, so she can do action, but they don't tend to think of like other actresses as, as having that capability. You know, if, if fucking Bob Odenkirk can be an action star, <laughs> yeah. try and get a lot of these actresses to be pretty decent in an action role, you know, yeah. and it's like, and you have to make these allowances, you know, there was this whole thing where, um, I actually kind of liked that recent, uh, the Angelina Jolie HBO Max film, uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead, where she's a firefighter. Yeah. I really so nice, liked it. Yeah, yeah, a really fun throwback to like a 90s style action film, right? Yeah. And he's like, just people are saying, like, oh, she, she's, she's way too tiny to be a firefighter, and it's not believable. It's like, nobody would give a shit. Like, nobody would have those kind of yeah. complaints if it was a guy, right? It's like, who right. gives a shit? That's not, that's not, I'm not worried about the realism here. I'm worried about, is she a fun presence on screen? And she is, you know? Um, so I, I think there's probably a lot of actresses who could take those roles. And if you just think of, like, the majority of action films that are still being made, just do, like, a little bit of a small rewrite, change that character into a woman, and the film is still going to be as badass as people want it to be. Yeah. So so yeah, I don't know. I I'm I'm with you. It's it's frustrating. I, I and I agree that it's like dumb that the conversation happens every time now because it's we've been having it for like a long time. I don't know. Well, the the thing is is where I'm coming from is I feel like the studios have like I feel like the studios have pretty much like across all the studios have pretty much in terms of that, you know, like uh I feel like the studios have come around and and we have a level playing field. I feel like the way the media reacts is like where the weirdness happens. And I think it's weird that like and again, I get okay, the biggest things going are either Marvel movies or Star Wars movies or whatever, so they're going to get like the most attention and people are going to kind of craft a and cuz it's like, you know, everything's about clickbait now. It's about getting the interest and you know, this this kind of I don't I, it's not really a battle of sexes, but this weird always bringing up the gender thing with these movies comes up. And it's like it's like it, it only gets like handpicked right like so it's always like like when like you know there's like a marvel movie to come out the press wants to be like oh you you know you go girl you're a strong woman you're this this but like when maggie q has a movie come out last week nobody wants to talk about it so it's like <laughs> do you okay are as a media or fans or whoever is always dragging this bullshit up do you actually care that there's a there's a woman doing awesome action or do you like is it just only when it like suits your needs when you can get a lot of clicks on a Marvel story? You know what I mean? Like, and, uh, and you know, this kind of become this thing too, like, uh, where, where the, the media is fighting back. Cause a lot of the fans are, uh, you know, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's like snickering too. It's, it's meant to be sarcastic, but a lot of people are starting to call the MCU, the MCU. And like, there's like, like all oh, this massaging this way. I'm like, as long, like, I don't, it's like, as long as it's, uh mathematically accurate if like the next whatever five projects coming out are led by women like okay call it the mcu i don't care that's not fucking hurting anybody's feelings that's the truth you know like like isn't the hawkeye tv show meant to so he can pass it to a young female i mean it's like okay it is what it is it's like either way like shut the fuck up about it you know what i mean it's like how much of it do you think is the is the media feeling like they and like whether this is right or wrong? How much of it is that they feel like they have to like be instantly defensive and reflexive to yeah. the stupid minority of like you know Twitter and YouTube sexist morons who still complain about things like the MCU, right? And then you know and like you'll see them like these are the people who you know I saw this in like the wake of Suicide Squad. Now um, 
uh, I really, I don't know how you felt about Birds of Prey. I really enjoyed that film. Oh, I like it a um, lot. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen say, it like twice. And I, I think there's some truth to like what I saw as a common complaint where as much as I love Suicide Squad, and I'm, I, this isn't necessarily talking about the, the quality of the two of against each other, but there's a lot of people kind of like raving about the decisions and things about the Suicide Squad that could also be applied to Birds of Prey that people right. ignored, right? Where they're just like, well, oh, I can't believe you just let them do like an R-rated action film. It's like, well, actually, they, they did one like last year. That was Birds of Prey, you know? And it's like, and, I, and, and everybody Suicide hated Squad, it, so. <laughs> yeah, granted Suicide Squad is like more R, but I mean, that's still not the good. Like they, they, they were already making that step and they did it with the Birds of Prey film. And I'd see people online be like, well, unlike Birds of Prey, which is just a terrible film. And it's like, okay, you're telling me like you, you really enjoyed Suicide Squad and then you look at birds of prey and you think it's terrible yeah. like i can understand thinking one is better but i feel like if you're if you're telling me that like suicide squad's great and you're telling me birds of prey is terrible i can kind of figure out where your motivation is coming from on that you know and so we definitely know those guys exist and they they have a, a platform uh, online yeah and do you think that so do you think the media is just like overcompensating to try and like knock them down a little bit even yes. though yes and they, even though they don't need to right because this is the thing this is this has always been the problem with the Star Wars fandom. Now it's the problem with superhero fandom. It's elevating the voices of too small of a group and like giving them too much power. Like, like I honestly feel like, and again, it all comes back to clickbait. And if you can create like an angle with your story of controversy and and your negative shit, you're gonna get more clicks. But like, I want to say like the height of it came um, probably during Captain Marvel, where there was like literally. I can't remember the exact tweet that it said, but there was like literally a couple of articles, more than one website wrote that there was one single tweet where some guy said some rude shit about Brie Larson. And I'm like, okay, like this guy made this Twitter comment in a vacuum. It wasn't even like one of those kind of instances where like it triggered this big debate and there's thousands of replies and people pile it on. And it's like, you actually wrote more articles and, and like like for one shitty comment mean comment you wrote like three or four articles that then amplified this and it's like you know it, it it's like it's like you 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 can't overblow the problem bigger than the problem really is if that makes any sense like you mm -hmm. can't you can't scream about misogyny nonstop and how out of control it is when it's like a very vast minority of people doing it you know what i mean yeah, when Captain Marvel is making a billion dollars, you don't have to protect yeah. it so much, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, then like, we even talked about that. Like, the corniest girl power moment in that movie is probably my favorite part of it. So, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like you, you make these things... Um, you know, it's you know it's just like if, if, if you cast an actor who's not white. The vast majority of people aren't going to care... And there's always going to be some dickhead who says a racist comment online. Like, so do you talk about the one racist dickhead who made a comment? Or do you talk about, like, all the people that went to see the movie and didn't have a problem with it? You know what I mean? Like, it's like you have to balance it to some degree. Like, like I mean, I'm not going to, like, sugarcoat it and say I think the world is a much better place than it's portrayed to be. But it, in some respects, this media has to get a leash on, like how severe the problem is like you don't write article after article when it's like a, a really minority of people you know what i mean like mm -hmm. it's just weird but i'm just like going back to my question is like like you wouldn't really sit there and ask like chris evans these questions and i get that they're trying to be helpful so so like you know, you do these junket interviews or whatever they are i, I think they were probably like zoom interviews or black widow from what i saw and it's like 
it's like you have this woman who's a producer of the film. She has a lot of stake emotionally, business interests, whatever in this film. And you're asking her these like kind of borderline controversial things where like she has to give an answer. She has to, you know, because if she goes all oh, no comment on that, then you, you, you know, that becomes like a big shitty deal too. So like you put her and, and then you run the headline, Scarlett Johansson says this or Scarlett Johansson says that. And it's just like, you think you're helping, but you're actually in a weird way, like kind of you're the sexist. Cause you know, when they do these interviews, they're just there to smile and promote a movie in all honesty. And like, you're putting the women in like, a dicer situation than you would put a male star. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I would like to say maybe it'll change soon, but I don't think it will. I think we're just going to yeah. keep dealing with this over and over and over again. I think, yeah. you know, we're going to have like the next six years of the MCU is going to be like, like more female led stuff. And people are still going to act like it's like, it means something each time or, you know, I'm not that I'm saying it doesn't mean something, but you know what I mean? Like they're going to, yeah. they're going to have the wrong reaction to it. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. And it's just like, because I mean, I mean, I mean, we don't need to go over it. I'm sure people listen to this. There's probably a good chunk of the population, Trev, who actually does not worship the altar of Mila Jovovich the way we do. Mm-hmm. But um, but so I'm sure when we sit there and gush about how she's like our favorite action star, there's probably people who are like, oh, just stop fucking talking about her already. But it's like, it's like that thing of like, yeah, it's just like, it's like, it's been here for a long fucking time. It's nothing new. Like, you know, and the box office proves that it's nothing new. So it's like, you're not really like, you know, like as awesome as they're continuing the tradition. I think, you know, like you can point to female movies that bombed. You can point to male movies that bomb. It doesn't fucking matter at this point. Like, when can we, when, when can we be the actual, like, not sexist society? <laughs> well, that's the, that's, the, that's the true equality you look for, right? Yeah. Where, like, you know, so, like, when a Wonder Woman 84 comes out and people don't like it, then they're like, well, I guess that just proves that Patty Jenkins can't do this. It's like, well, yeah, but, she, I mean, how many, like, male filmmakers have made a good film yeah. and then followed it with a bad one and then come back? You know, it's like, that's, yeah. and, like, it, like it, I watched, uh, I, I like uh, the Underworld films a lot, too, right? Yeah. So I like Kate Beckinsale's an action star. I watched that film Jolt on Amazon, and I wasn't, I wasn't super impressed with it. And it's yeah. not like, well, I guess this proves women can't make an action film. It's just like, oh no, this is kind of like how uh, some Jason Statham movies are good, and some of them are trash. You know, exactly. like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just just need to, you know, get over it already. And like, also too, it's it's like, you know, this whole thing of like coming out and proclaiming like, oh, you know, the press is like, this film has a strong like female lead. It's like. It's like, shouldn't the critics and, like, the audiences who pay to see the movie, shouldn't they determine who's strong and who's not? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, like, a weird whole other topic. But it's just, like, I don't know. It's it's just, like, it's, like, you know, you don't have to portray, just like you don't have to portray every man the same way, you don't have to portray every woman the same way, too. You know what I mean? Like, there can be room for difference (laughs) and, like, actual diversity, you know? Well, that's definitely the problem, too, is that in, like, this, like, desire to, you know, again, be overreactive and make these films that are, like, strong female lead movies, sometimes they're just writing very generic female characters to be the leads in those instead of coming up with, like, actual compelling characters that we want to see. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, part of the problem is also that, you know, we were saying there's, there's still... You were saying that there is equality now, but we're still obviously seeing more male-led action films. 
um, if, if like there could be like more women in positions of power in Hollywood, uh, you know, to beat a to beat a very dead horse, but yeah. uh, maybe we get to see more films like you know, uh, and finally the discourse could start swinging the other way. But I don't know. I maybe the, again, this is probably a good thing about streaming is I think streaming is going to allow for a lot of opportunities of like female action films that wouldn't yeah. be coming out to theaters. Um, I think you're already seeing that a little bit with like you know Charlie's Theron getting like uh, you know the old guard getting her own action franchise and. On Netflix and uh, and and uh, you know I, I just think you're gonna see more stuff like that and hopefully that'll start to turn the tide. I don't know. We'll see. You know, it's it's kind of funny too because like y- you know what's annoying when like they make like a bad. This is like another like borderline weird sexist thing. But every time they make a female like hard R action movie now, you know, like um like Atomic Blonde, like everybody's like, oh, this is a female John Wick. This is a female John Wick, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like John Wick was not like the only action character ever created, you know what I mean? Like that's just happening to action in genre or yeah. in general right now though, yeah. right? Is that like action action and and horror are the two genres that are like the most reactionary and follow trends and I feel like we are still very much in a post John Wick world in action where everything wants to fit into that mold. Um, no, you're wrong. I loved Nobody. It's like one of my favorite films of the year. Um, but it's and it, but then you look at like Nobody. Look at like something like Gunpowder Milkshake, which is another film that could fit into this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, everybody's trying to do that John Wick thing right now, right? Yeah. Of like this this like uh, assassins in a world that has all these rules you didn't know about. And it's like, oh, okay. Like when are we gonna move beyond this? You know, we're we're getting, we're getting, soon gonna have the fourth John Wick movie. Do we still need to live in a world where everything else is trying to be that franchise? I, I don't think so. Well, you know what's so odd to me too, because I mean, we talked about this thing last time or somewhat soon as like, you know, I did like the John Wick rewatch this past year, and like, if you look it up. If it wasn't Lionsgate who made the first John Wick movie, meaning like a smaller studio with a lack of hits, like if Sony or Paramount would have, or somebody like that would have made John Wick, like I don't think we ever would have got a sequel because those movies, like Pete, like the action fans talk them up, but they act like it's like they, they put it in the same class with like Marvel or something. Like it's this thing that everybody loves, and the grosses are like. They're very respectable, you know, compared to the budgets of the films, but they're really not that big of hits. So, like, for those to be the movies that everybody wants to copy, it's like, oh, okay, like, at best case scenario, if you got John Wick, <laughs> like, box office, you still wouldn't be making that much. So why, instead of just innovating and doing your own thing, like, why rip it off so hard? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just weird. But, yeah, I mean, that puts us right about two hours. I think this was a good conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of these topics, it's like, I'm like, oh, like, I want to ask Trev this. And then you give me your answer. And then my mind starts working. and I start coming up with other like things like, oh, yeah, and then this and this just, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to talk about Space Jam, a new legacy. Well, that's all right. I didn't, I didn't watch it. So, <laughs> I will say that was like because I was trying to do the the HBO trifecta or whatever, like watching all those the, theatrical release films, Trev. And yeah. I was like, I was like, fuck it, Space Jam's gonna fuck it up. I because I mean, I hate LeBron James. Like, I mm-hmm. love Michael Jordan. I didn't even like Michael Jordan doing Space Jam. I think it kind of like stole some of his coolness. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, it's so disgusting. Like, how dare he come remake Michael Jordan's movie? And then, like, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can watch it. I, I sat down and watched it. I'm like, this is actually good because they actually made LeBron the villain. They made him a <laughs> terrible father. <laughs> so it was, like, actually, like, the cartoon characters had to come and, like, defeat his shittiness. So I was like, yeah, it was 
It was actually okay. I, I like, I'm actually okay with Space Jam: New Legacy. So, oh wow, what a hot take! <laughs> it is a hot take. All right, so I guess that's it. Um, again, always uh, beating down the doors with failure to franchise. That solo episode, like, you guys made my dream come true with that one. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, uh, um, yeah, I was I was pretty pleased with it as far as an episode. It was one of our most contentious episodes, but it was a, I thought it was a fun conversation. I was uh, you know, for a film I avoided for a long time, I was kind of shocked to not to say I loved it, but I was kind of shocked to just be like, that's okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but no, that's we got some exciting stuff coming up uh, for that show uh, for Failure Franchise. We're uh, for through September and October, we are uh, looking at the journey to the dark universe. We're going to look at. The kind of decades-long uh, quest of Universal to relaunch their Universal monsters with Van Helsing, the Wolfman, Dracula Untold, and the Mummy. And then I think you're going to dig this, Goat. I'll, I'll drop the news here. Um, we have something very special planned for November. Um, we're going to be doing something called Noise November, which is two films from director Philip Noyce. We are wow. looking at we are looking at Salt, and then we're looking at Blind Fury with Rudger Hauer. Wow. Uh, yeah talk talk about uh, a career spanning decades those two films are what about 20 yeah. years apart yeah. yeah this actually just kind of came about because uh we uh well i'm sure we'll tell this story again on the episode but uh during our regular move uh, chris and i are part of a, a regular movie night with some guys and we've mm-hmm. been uh, kind of watching a lot of like i said i mentioned earlier watching a lot of like uh, mid to late 80s and 90s action films and we were kind of in the mood to just watch something like kind of goofy and some of us were like i remember this blind fury movie being on cable all the time when i was young but don't remember too much about it uh watched it and actually were like really into it and then looked it up and sure enough like there was a sequel planned as they were making that film and it never materialized so then we just happened to be looking at phil noise's filmography and realized he directed a couple other movies on our list so it all came together yeah i remember blind fury being a legit sleeper hit on home video yeah, and that's just another one where I feel like it just kind of those ones where man, every time I would turn on the TV, you know, I was on one one of the one of the movie channels had Blind Fury on. Yeah, and uh, you don't have to give a super detailed answer, but one thing I've been wanting to ask you because you actually are somewhat of a comic book expert, Trev, because you also have another podcast called uh, Days of Future Podcast Examining the X-Men. So, I mean, you keep up with, you know, very heavily side on the comic book things, dude. I've been seeing like a video apocalypse on youtube of guys who comment on entertainment stuff a lot of movie stuff so i watch some of the algorithm throws me other videos there are so many people declaring the death of comic books now like how bad is this problem like to the point where i guess apparently a lot of creators are even leaving marvel and dc and going to like these kind of like self-funded fan-funded projects like is it really as bad as everybody's making it out to be it's it's hard to say like i i'm not I do still love comic books. I still read comic books. I wouldn't say I pay enough attention to the business aspect to tell you like how dire sales might be right now or anything yeah. compared to like uh, you know a few years ago. I will say that if you head into a comic book store right now, what you will see a lot is suddenly very reminiscent of the of like the late '80s and and like maybe even lesser degree early '90s to me. There's suddenly like this explosion of secondary publishers. Mm-hmm. So for like the last like 
uh, kind of decade plus or last couple decades, the industry was really just completely dominated by Marvel, DC, and then right below them to a lesser degree, Image and, and Dark Horse, right? And those were like kind of like the four companies everyone knows, yeah. um, you know, Dark Horse kind of being the longest running like indie company and then, and then Image kind of is coming along and Image's identity really changing over the years as I'm maybe you know a little bit of this go, like Image initially started as like it was like meant to be a, a primary competitor to Marvel and DC and then was for a while. There was a period where it actually overtook them in sales, a brief moment. But over time, Image stopped being like its own superhero universe and instead became a kind of a publishing house for creator-owned titles. Um, so like, you know, Spawn and Savage Dragon from the original run still exist. But most Image books now are just kind of their own thing. Like, right, public, like right. creators are allowed to come to Image, come up with their own concept. Image will publish it, but the creator retains all the rights to it. Um, but they're still doing very well for that reason. And now you're seeing like a bunch of other companies that kind of do a similar thing. So I think what those videos might be referring to is because there's suddenly so many other publishing houses that are allowing for more creative freedom in their storytelling and mm -hmm. for creator-owned rights, I think you are seeing the big creators maybe a little bit more hesitant to sign these like long deals with Marvel and DC, and there's just like more variety for them. So for fans, it's like kind of a good period, I think, because yeah. a lot of these like great creators right now have very interesting books coming out that have nothing to do with Marvel and DC. I think some aspects of Marvel and DC feel a little creatively stagnant right now. Now, luckily yeah. for me, my podcast is about the X-Men, which is currently in the midst of like this huge, gigantic creative resurgence. <laughs> like the, like, like uh, the current era of the X-Men is fantastic. Uh, thanks to the, the work of some writers over there doing a kind of this complete um, narrative overhaul of it, which you can listen to our show to hear us talk about. But other areas of Marvel and certainly some areas of DC are kind of like, oh, really? That's just more of this, huh? So, yeah, I don't know. But it's always it, it all it all it's all cyclical. It all comes in waves. It all ups and downs. Uh, comic books aren't going anywhere. I think you're definitely going to see a shift in, um, you know, maybe like monthly books uh, in the current format they exist might go away because I don't know if anyone can financially keep up with them. Yeah, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, a transition to like digital reading and trade paperback. Uh, as being the primary formats, but uh, but yeah, there was a long rambling answer to your question. But... No, yeah, because no, it's perfect. Because the 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 kind of news story that broke, I want to say like about a month or two ago, that kind of opened my eyes to be like, oh, maybe these guys are like kind of, you know, because because I mean, as far as just fan, you know, dissatisfaction, like 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 as much as everybody loves Marvel MCU movies, it seems like a lot of longtime comic book readers are so critical of the Marvel actual comic books now. But one thing that opened my eyes that were like, oh, maybe this is just like less disgruntled fans and maybe there's some truth to this. So there's like this story. And again, I'm sorry for all you guys into like Japanese stuff, but I'm very ignorant about it. But there was like, I can't remember the title. It was like apparently like some big giant Japanese manga book came out and it was like when it came out, it supposedly sold more copies than all DC titles and all Marvel titles combined for that week. And I was like, holy shit, if that's happening, like how bad are the sales for these Marvel and DC titles? Well, you know? No, so, I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of more that manga is enjoying a huge boom period right now. Yeah. And that is fed, uh, so as someone who works in Barnes & Noble, I can talk to you about this. This the, the, the manga explosion that's happening right now is very, very heavily fed by TikTok. Wow, uh, TikTok <laughs> culture like there is a whole thing with like called um if like, so for young people uh, there's a there's a gigantic subsection of TikTok known as like book talk, 
with uh, you know kids making these like these minute long videos where they like recommend books they've read recently, and then uh, obviously like manga has become a big part of that too. And this is actually something that I would talk to people at the, the Barnes and Noble I work at with like some level of frustration for myself. I have nothing against manga, but we have so like manga right now is just having this huge huge boom period. We've had to expand our manga section. Um, it's just like it's become a very big part of the sales for Barnes and Noble. Um, and I've seen this happen. If, if, this is again, like, I've, and I've told young people, and they don't, they don't want to believe me. I said this isn't going to last. <laughs> this is, <laughs> yeah. this, this has happened before. Mongo is very big for a moment uh, in the early 2000s as well, and it kind of died off, and it'll happen again. But right now, it's huge. But I was saying, like, it is frustrating that at a time where there are so many great comic books and graphic novels, uh, they're being, you know, like they're kind of more like uh, domestic and, and you know, uh, not manga. That like all these young kids are coming in and they only care about manga. Right. And I was like, well, that sucks. I'm not telling them not to read manga, but it's really frustrating to see like so many young people just only reading that and ignoring all the great books that Image are putting out or Dark Horse or, you know, you know, right. these other smaller up and coming publishers and even some of the Marvel and DC stuff. It's like, hey, don't forget there's, there's other comic books right here on this wall, right behind the manga shelves too, you know? So, uh, but we'll see how long that lasts, but, but yeah, I'm not surprised by that story at all because yeah, manga is just gigantic right now. Maybe that will be the uh, the wave of like ten years from now. It's like maybe the manga market will crash, like in terms of book sales. But then that will be the new ground for adapting every movie <laughs> instead of MC and DC. You know, MC, uh, MCU and DC manga will just be having a- movie adaptations out the ass. But... It could be. That's like the one interesting thing. Is like as big as like manga is, it's like a sales force right now, and is like a cultural thing. It's surprising to me that like that's you're not seeing more like Hollywood adaptations of it. But the yeah. the interesting thing about that is that whereas like superhero stuff you know superhero comic books are often considered like american mythology um the american audience who all these kids who come in and like lap up all this manga they are very very suspicious of any kind of american attempt to adapt it you know so you have like the other day like the images coming out of the cowboy bebop uh, live action show on netflix and you know some people like me are excited for it and you see a lot of other people just saying like how dare any like American company try to do Bebop, you know? And right. there's been like long people trying to get Akira made for a long time, and the people uh, we, you know, you and I know people who have said like, you know, like n- nobody who isn't Japanese should make Akira, you know? So it's just like you have like a you have a, a higher hurdle too when you decide to do manga because your audience is already like you're not the people who should be doing it. So yeah, I was gonna yeah. ask you, is it so big that we're at the point now where, because you know, like you know how um, anime has such an influence on on you know American animators over the last twenty years that you see a lot of American animation that's very reminiscent of anime. Is it to the point where is there is there any Americans or maybe not even Americans, maybe people from Europe or anywhere also trying to like put out their own manga, or is it like just strictly the Japanese stuff that the kids want? It pretty much is strictly Japanese. That's that's kind of inter- that's an interesting question. You don't see too much crossover there. There was definitely a movement, particularly in the in the early two thousands, of um, you know, the American companies like DC or more. Actually, I think Marvel's kind of more on board with this, um, trying to bring over some of the manga artists, the, like the more famous manga artists, to do like you know specials. Uh, I remember there was a Wolverine miniseries called Wolverine Snicked, that was like a Wolverine book done in a manga style. Uh, so you'll see them try to like bring like do like, hey, look, here's our version of a manga book. Um, and you'll see like manga, like versions of like, they'll, they'll do like, um, like there's a Marvel zombies manga book 
but it's very much just re- done in the mar- in the in the uh, in this traditional manga style by Japanese artists. Right. Uh, you, you don't see you're not seeing like American or other international artists jump into that world. And I don't know if there's like an inroad for them to do it. I, again, I don't know if that's like I don't know if it's the culture itself that doesn't let them in or if it is the audience that just says like, no, 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 this isn't your place. You know? hey, Trev, have you ever seen that movie called Demon Lover? Uh, I mean, the long, long time ago. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> that's just talking about anime and manga that's what it came up mm-hmm. so yeah so this is our abbreviated version of movie talk instead of three hours it's going to be about two hours 15 minutes so <laughs> i hope we didn't wear your guys ears out too much but again as always trev this is really fun and i'm sure you know if if we don't do this before the end of the year we'll probably do it really early next year so mm-hmm. you know but uh, just there's always interesting shit to come up with. So again, Trev, thanks a lot, man, and the listeners. Thank you guys. It seemed like uh, you guys liked the last episode. Hopefully, you enjoy this one as well. Till next time, I get. I was gonna say we'll see you here in the movie graveyard, but like maybe we'll see you in like the whatever Trev and Goats fucking movie basement or wherever this is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, take care. We'll talk to you soon. See ya.